Hello again, friends, and welcome to a very special episode of the 605 Super Podcast, a special look back at the life and career of Bruno San Martino, the man known as the living legend, one of professional wrestling's all-time greatest attractions, all-time greatest drawing cards, and someone who reached a level of stardom in the Northeast that very few athletes ever reach. I'm the great Brian Last. I'm very happy to be joined today for this special program by my friend and yours, John McAdam. John, Bruno Sammartino, when I say that name to you, what's the first thing you think? Uh, I mean, honestly, he the first thing I think, he's a legend's legend. It's hard to describe to someone not from the Northeast, and I have both a New York and Boston perspective on this, uh, just how huge Bruno was up here. Um, Hogan was was like – he was you know like a, a pop star, but Bruno was like I, – I don't even know how to describe him. He was just uh, – he was like Elvis in a way. You know, it's weird. When I would meet him at uh, various like autograph shows in the 90s, and he was the last guy who – refused to sign autographs for money. All of his autographs were free. You could buy a picture, but he wouldn't charge for his autograph. And I always had the feeling around him like he wasn't a wrestler. I never had this with any other wrestler, but I almost felt maybe it was because of the way he conducted himself. Maybe it was because of the way he always had conducted himself. I felt like I was in the presence of like a sports legend from the Northeast, like a Mickey Mantle or a Joe Namath, like that level of celebrity to me. Just because of the way he carried himself, and that's one of the unique things about him, and, and I said this to you off air, but when I was a kid growing up as a wrestling fan, Bruno had already retired, but when people would find out that I was a wrestling fan and talk to me about it, they would bring up Bruno, and they would point out that he was real, that he was real, and that's one of his main appeals. You go back and you watch those promos he did, they're unlike any other babyface promos you'll ever see. It's a guy just telling you what's going on. Every now and then he'll speak in some Italian. Every now and then he'd get really fired up, but he was completely believable. Yeah, he went out there and he would be himself, and I think that was part of what made it work. Bruno's typical interview, uh, and I got to see him like his last year, year and a half as champion. Uh, they would be talking about, you know, some wrestler who Bruno was going to face. Let me just throw Stan Stasiak's name out there. Bruno would come out the first interview, and he'd be, you know, he'd smile, and he'd be giving Stan Stasiak credit for being, you know, a really good wrestler, and he's a very strong man, and it's definitely going to be a tough challenge out there. And then, you know, Vince McMahon would say, hey, Bruno, speak a little Italian, and Bruno would kind of laugh, and he'd speak in Italian. Well, then they'd have the match, and Stan Stasiak would fight dirty. It was almost like Bruno coming in, I'll give this a chance, but it always didn't work out well. Stasiak would fight dirty, and then they would announce a rematch. Well, now you've got Bruno mad, and he would look in that camera, and he would be angry at Stan Stasiak, and he'd tell you exactly what he was going to do to Stan Stasiak, and you just knew Stasiak was in trouble. You just awakened the sleeping giant, and it, it worked. I mean, Bruno drew like no one else, really, in the Northeast. And when you started talking to other wrestling fans, whether it was at school, wherever else, what were their thoughts? Was Bruno the biggest star to everyone? By far. I mean, and they, they protected Bruno. I think the whole time I was a fan, and we're talking about, like, I started late 75, started getting into it. I don't believe I ever saw Bruno wrestle on television uh, on a regular match. I think they just, he was strictly the guy who wrestled at the arenas and did interviews to promote those, those shows. I can name one match you saw on TV. Bruno and Zabisco, 1980. 
Ah, uh, that's true. This is this was after Bruno had lost the title, and you know there was something about Bruno. He had that charisma. Um, when they announced, I remember the Saturday afternoon, they said that Bruno had lost the title, and they showed the clips of the match against superstar Billy Graham. I was, and this is going to sound crazy, I was legitimately shaken up for the rest of the day. It was almost unimaginable that Bruno would lose the title, even though I think, you know, logically, you got to figure he's going to at some point. I was I was shocked, and I, I couldn't get over it, like, the whole rest of the day. Same thing when Zabisco turned on him. I, it was, like, all I could think about the, the whole rest of the day. And I know that when you look back at the buildup of that match, it was so obvious Zabisco was turning, but I didn't pick up on it. I couldn't, you know, even fathom Larry Zabisco turning on his mentor like that. And then once again, shaken up at midnight when Bruno announces his retirement, uh, or that his retirement match is coming up. This is like late summer 1981. We're going to talk a lot on this show about Bruno and Madison Square Garden, but you are someone with a New England background, and a lot of people don't talk as much about Bruno and Boston, but you were there for some of those shows. Talk about Bruno's relationship with the Boston wrestling fans. I mean, people up here, I mean, they it was like they lit candles to Bruno. He was above, he was like up there with a Ted Williams or a Bobby Orr as far as just fans worshiping him. Let, let me, if you went to Boston, to the Boston Garden, it was a safe idea not to boo Bruno. You, you could get away with that with Hogan. You could get away with that with Backlund. If you wanted to boo Bruno, you better do it internally because you would get in trouble. Bruno, and a lot of people don't know this, the whole time Bob Backlund was champion at Madison Square Garden, Bruno headlined Madison Square Garden once. It was uh, against Sergeant Slaughter after Slaughter attacked Arnold Skoland on TV while Backlund was doing a Japan tour. Boston Garden, 70, 79, 80, and 81, apparently Backlund wasn't drawing particularly well in Boston early on. And they, you know, when Bruno came back in late 1978, they started putting him in main events in Boston. And I would say, you know, they didn't completely kick back on doubt, but Bruno was wrestling main events in Boston. I don't, I don't think he was wrestling them anywhere else. Well, that's one of the questions I raise in a conversation we'll hear later on in the show is how do you replace Bruno? And you're not replacing him because he's still around. But if you have a new guy you're trying to elevate to that level. How do you do it when Bruno's still there and Bruno's still the most popular guy, still the biggest drawing card, even if he isn't your champion? Uh, I mean, good question. And I guess the best way to look at it is that, in a sense, the torch had been passed, not directly, but from Bruno to Backlund. And Backlund did, you know, if Bruno went into a match and he lost a match, well, okay, he just lost a match. If Backlund loses, well, the title's on the line. And the title was very important up here. So at least Bob had that going for him. And eventually, you know, I think he always drew, Bob Backlund always drew well in Madison Square Garden. He got off to a slow start in Boston, but by the end, after Bruno had retired, uh, people were coming out to see both the WWF brand and Bob Backlund. Of course, Bruno was not very happy when he returned after his 1981 retirement, but he did have some main events in Boston. Did you get to attend any of those? Yeah, I, I'm lucky enough to have attended uh, the Roddy Piper series and the um, the Randy Savage series, both of which, you know, you look back on that and think about this. We're talking uh, Piper was 
beginning of 86. Savage was late 86, early 1987. Think about how far removed we are from Bruno being champion. I mean, we're looking at nine or ten years. Um, and, you know, the product had completely changed. Uh, it was, you know, the Hogan WWF was completely different than Bob Backlund WWF. Backlund, despite being champion for almost six years, the fans completely turned on him. The last like six to 12 months, he was in the WWF. They never turned on Bruno. Even in the middle of the Hogan era, Bruno could come to Boston. You know, they'd run an angle with Piper. They'd run an angle with Savage. And it would draw. And it would draw better than Hogan. I think... Um, Bruno drew a, a sellout in Boston against Randy Savage, I want to say like February 87, and it was the first time the Garden had sold out since 85, and Hogan had been on shows. You know, again, I say that, I know Bruno didn't like his post-81 return, but I always thought that was great stuff, the stuff with him and Piper. The angle where after Savage injures Ricky Steamboat and Bruno's back there interviewing him and his face is telling the story. And finally, yes. he can't take it anymore. And he says, you piece of slime. And he just attacks Randy. Luckily, Hillbilly Jim and a bunch of other people were around there <laughs> to separate them. I don't know what's going on in that locker room, but it was so good. It was so intense. And you believed Bruno. And there was a reason they were doing that. The reason was Bruno still was a draw. And in many places, he was a more reliable repeat draw than Hogan still as late as early 87. Yeah. And like I said, Bruno had to be uh, doing a little math here. I mean, he was in his early 50s, and he kind of looked like a guy who was in really good shape, but he was still in his early 50s, and people were coming out to see him. You brought up Madison Square Garden. I want to mention a few things here. Scott Teal, a friend of the show, the man behind Crowbar Press, who, of course, put out the great book with J. Michael Kenyon, Wrestling in the Garden, a battle for New York, work shoots and double crosses. Sent along some information from the book, just so we could say some actual facts about Bruno and Madison Square Garden. His very first show there, January 2nd, 1960, the main event, Antonino Rocca beat the mighty Zuma. That was a big main event for the time, and it drew over 21,000 people. Bruno made his debut beating Wild Bull Curry on that show. That's in January of 1960, just six months later, June 4th, 1960, he has his first main event in the Garden. Antonino Rocca, the biggest drawing card, the biggest ethnic star in New York, before Bruno, teams with Bruno to beat Pampero Furpo, and the great Antonio, two falls to none. So that's the beginning of Bruno at Madison Square Garden. What was his last main event at Madison Square Garden? July 12th, 1986, the main event steel cage match. Bruno San Martino and Tito Santana against Randy Savage and Adrian Adonis. Bruno and Tito won that night. There's been so much talked about with the numbers of Bruno and sellouts and how many shows. Let's actually look at this from a factual point of view. I don't blame anyone who's hung on to the 187 or the 188 numbers because most people don't have the facts, don't have the numbers, don't want to go through the cards and actually count it up. But luckily for me, someone else did because I didn't want to do it either. So here's the actual numbers. Bruno San Martino had the most appearances in Madison Square Garden in the post-1940 era. Bruno had 159 matches in Madison Square Garden. 159. Just for the record here, number two on the list, Pedro Morales with 111. So that's a pretty big drop 
from 159 to 111, filling out the list of the top five, Chief J. Strongbow at 104, Baron Mikel Sakluna with 102, and Gorilla Monsoon with 100 Madison Square Garden appearances. So Bruno has 159 appearances. That we could tell factually is true. The number of sellouts isn't as easy to figure out because what are we basing the gate receipts on? What are we basing it on? Are we basing it on newspaper reports? Some of those are bullshit. So we have to figure out what were sellouts, what weren't. We can figure out for the most part, but some may slip by. What we do know is that the amount of sellouts Bruno had for the 159 appearances he made at Madison Square Garden were in the range, as best we can determine, of 45 times. 45 times in 159 appearances. That's mighty impressive, John. I agree. And one other thing we want to keep in mind, and I'm not, I'm certainly not trying to disparage anyone here. Let's say Pedro Morales, Chief J. Strongbow, certainly Baron Mikel Cicluna. How many times were they on the shows at Madison Square Garden, but they were just another guy? They were just another body filling out the card. I mean, that, you know, that certainly applies to Pedro, like 85, 86, 87. Bruno, not one time was he on the show at Madison Square Garden where he was just another body filling the card. No. And he was used for important occasions, too. Remember when Pedro won the title? In Madison Square Garden, right, you know, what, a month after, a few weeks after Bruno lost the title. Three weeks. Pedro wins the title three weeks later. It's Bruno in his, you know, in his suit who runs out there, congratulates Pedro in the ring, raises his hand, endorses him. That was important. They had to do that. Yeah, I I agree. I mean... You know, Bruno absolutely had to endorse the new champion, and we've seen this in wrestling before, but um, and we've seen it since. But I mean, Bruno, above all else, telling the people at Madison Square Garden that, yeah, I'm behind this guy, I support this guy, was very, very important. We mentioned Bruno's first run in Madison Square Garden, his first show there, January second, nineteen sixty. His first main event there, June 4th, 1960. Well, let's go back to the very beginning. A few weeks back on the Super Podcast, we had a chance to speak to Don Leo Jonathan, one of the great legends of professional wrestling history, one of the great giants in professional wrestling history. And he mentioned Bruno Sammartino. I wanted to know, he was there at the very beginning, who was more popular at their peak in New York, Antonino Rocca or Bruno Sammartino? You got to witness Rocca at his peak. You also got to see Bruno Sammartino at his peak in the same area in the Northeast. How would you compare the two in terms of popularity? Oh, uh, uh, San Martino was much more popular as time went by. There was a time when I, w- I was in uh, New Jersey in an arena the first time. They introduced Bruno. Really? Yeah, and Rocco was already a seasoned veteran. So he came a little later, Bruno did. But as far as popularity overall during the run of time, Bruno was much more uh, talked about than Rocco. Ask any Italian in New York who was the best wrestler in the world. Yeah, it was San Martino. (laughs) They still say that to this day. Many people in New York. Well, they got good reason to. Bruno quickly establishes himself in New York as a major drawing car and a major star. 
after he gets blackballed by Vince McMahon Sr., he ends up in Toronto for Frank Tunney. He does the exact same thing. Before you know it, he's back in New York, and this is a very interesting time. It's the beginning of the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. It's the end of Buddy Rogers' power in the wrestling business, and here's Bruno. Here's the next great ethnic babyface who would turn out to be the greatest ethnic babyface in professional wrestling history, and Bruno comes in, and before you know it, Buddy Rogers is gone, and Bruno Sammartino's the champion, and everything is working out perfect for Vince McMahon Sr. It leaves the NWA everything's working out and Bruno has a lot of big opponents and he has a lot of big matches at Madison Square Garden and in 1964 a new babyface shows up to be his friend to team up with him and that babyface is Cowboy Bill Watts just a few years into his wrestling career well I was very fortunate to have a chance to speak to Cowboy Bill Watts about this and also about the fact that while he was Bruno's friend and tag team partner, he was also the first babyface to turn on Bruno Sammartino, and boy, did he have a lot of heat, and he also had four main events at Madison Square Garden against Bruno. Let's go to Cowboy Bill Watts right now. As we continue our look at the life and career of Bruno Sammartino, I am very happy to have on the show today one of his most famous opponents. Famously, a tag team partner of his, and then four huge matches at Madison Square Garden, and that, of course, is the Oklahoma Stampeder himself, Cowboy Bill Watts. Welcome to the program today. Well, thank you, Brian. You know, I mentioned that you are one of Bruno's most famous opponents, and I think a lot of fans probably don't realize the run you had in New York, in the Northeast, in the mid-60s with Bruno. So before we talk about you and Bruno, let's set that up a little bit. How did you first get into New York at the beginning of 64? Because you'd only been wrestling a few years at that point. Right. Yeah, I started in 1962, so that was early. I uh, was wrestling for Leroy McGurk Championship Wrestling, Inc., and uh, I was wrestling in Joplin, Missouri. <laughs> and a, an old superstar, Wild Red Berry, was home. Uh, his wife, Lil, used to do the census up in Pittsburgh, Kansas. And Red was home uh, with her at that time, and Red was managing the kangaroos or other people for back in New York. And Red was a huge star. I mean, he was a megastar clear back with Danny McShane and guys like that. He was really quite a quite a story. I mean, some of these stories are just amazing with how these guys survived and the things they went through. But anyway, so Red uh was there in and and Leroy booked him on the card and booked me as his tag team partner because Red was up in years and 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 Leroy knew that he couldn't do much in the ring but he would have a big draw to the people. And the promoter there was a guy named Bob Clay who was an old fashioned promoter who didn't believe in putting a live T V show in there. Figure that out. I mean some of these guys' brains I don't know what, <laughs> what, what, what they even think about. But yeah. he, so he, here we are, he didn't have, but he had the, on the local news, he had a segment. And so when we were in Joplin, he advertised on the local news. So while Red Berry was there, and like I say, I was there, and we got a little schmoz going with the guys that, uh, that we were going to wrestle that night at the Joplin uh, Civic Center or Auditorium or whatever it was. And uh, it was wild and woolly, and Red loved it. Red loved it, the fact that here I am, a uh, brand in the business and already setting up a smile, you know. And so he, he was really impressed by that. And uh, it drew very, very well, and the match went great and all this. And 
he, you know, I got to visit with him a little bit. I was impressed by getting to, to visit with him and because he was a big star. But uh, so anyway, he went back, unbeknownst uh, to me, and he told Vince and Toots Mott and all of them back in New York about me. So I was wrestling in a 4-H barn in Wichita Falls, Texas. that didn't even have a phone. The, the same promoter that promoted Joplin used to promote Wichita Falls, Texas. <laughs> so it was a 4-H barn that didn't even have a phone. And the police came and got me and told me I had an emergency call. My gosh, I thought maybe something had happened to my parents. You know, I just couldn't imagine why I would be getting this emergency call. Yeah. But it wasn't. It was it was Vince and Toots, Vince McMahon and Toots Mom. This is Vince Sr. <laughs> and because uh, Vince Jr. at that time was in college. So anyway, I get this phone call. And uh, they tell me that Wild Red Berry, blah, 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 blah. And I'm to, I'm to start on, this is a Thursday. And I'm to start on Washington, D.C. TV, which is where they take their, their big big television show that went into New York. I'm to start there next Thursday. And naive as I was, I said, well, I'll have to ask Mr. McGurk. They said, we'll take care of Mr. McGurk. You just be here. <laughs> so, so the next day, I went into the office in, in Tulsa, and I told Leroy about the call, and he already knew about it. And he said, this is a huge opportunity for you. You're going to go. And so he laid it all out for me. To make a long story short, I went there, and, and that's how it all started. And then, you know, uh, here I am, a, a guy that, you know, I'm just barely in the business and, 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 and don't think I know much. And, and uh, I'm sure there's a lot that would agree. But anyway, I get up there, and uh, of the guys I met, uh, you know, Killer Kowalski was a star then. And, of course, Bruno Sarantino and Gorilla Monsoon were in the middle of a big program. And it was just an awesome thing. And I just, I, I didn't understand much about what was always going on up there. But Bruno Sammartino and I hit it off because he could see I had, I was uh, uh, working out on the weights and was really, really strong. And so we started working out on the weights together. And I just thought I was strong. I mean, you know, here you are with a guy that could bench press more than anybody in the world at that time, but nobody would count it because he was a professional. Back in those, that day, they didn't count what a pro did. Matter of fact, I had a friend of mine that, that got had to, he got kicked off the Olympic team as a sprinter. He was the world champion sprinter in a quarter mile because he accepted a wristwatch. That's how strict the Olympics was wow. back then. Yeah. And you see where it is today. But anyway, to make a long story short, Bruno and I started working out on the weights together. And my gosh, my bench press just went crazy. I mean, I've never had anything like this and so I, I that's when I first started hitting 500 pounds and moving on up on the bench press and uh, matter of fact I ended up uh, in one one year working out they did 585 pounds which at that time was the most anybody had done in in in, in bench press except for Bruno Sammartino and at, at some of those deals when we'd work out in New York City he he was a guy that believed in big reputa- re- repetitions they, he didn't believe in the in the short repetition sets, and neither did I. And I think that's what kept us from, from injuries because we would start low and work all the way up and do high repetitions. Well, so we'd work all the way up to our maxes and do some singles with those. But we would start out doing three sets of 10 with two and a quarter on the bench press, three sets of 10 or two and a quarter. And then we'd go on up in increments and then we'd come back down. Well, then Bruno sometimes just he could get you psychologically. I mean, this guy was a great competitor. He'd go over and to the incline bench 
and take 150-pound dumbbells and start doing incline flies. Oh, Are wow. you kidding me? Get out of here. <laughs> or, 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 or one day we're doing the bench presses, and we've gone up. And back, like I say, I, I was hitting up over the 550 and getting up, getting up there. And we went up and we worked all the reps. We we tried to always do at least 100 repetitions in our bench press workout. And we got up there and, and, and uh, uh, we worked up and we worked down. And Bruno said, okay, now let's go back to two and a quarter. He said, let's do three sets of a many, as many reps as we can. Well, I'm shocked. He goes, he does 10. I did about six. He does another 10. I did about three. <laughs> he does another 10. I'm so blown now I could only get another one. So, I mean, that's another thing he would do. I mean, he was just a powerful guy. But also in the process, I got to know him and he got to know me. And this guy was an honorable guy. He was a man's man. He was honest. His word was his bond. And like I say, he mentored me in so many ways that it's just unbelievable. Uh, I'll never forget that I thought I was not getting a fair amount of pay on the on the deal. Like every wrestler thinks, no wrestler ever thinks he's getting a fair amount of pay based on the on the on the draw of the house. Right. But then no wrestler's paying the bills. He doesn't even have a clue what it costs to put that show on. He doesn't have a clue what it costs to, for television or anything else. All he looks at is that house and thinks he should, he is getting screwed. And yeah, you may be. You may be not getting as much as. They could give you. But so I was going to leave and go back home. And Bruno said, so you think Leroy McGurk pays you fair? And I said, well, he pays me a lot more fair than they do here. So what were you making a week? Now, you got to realize this is back in an era. When I got the business, my economics professor at Oklahoma University had told us that we were making 25000 a year. We were wealthy. That's what the economy was. If you could make $25,000 a year, you were wealthy. So, all right, back home, I'm making, you know, three, four hundred bucks a week, sometimes 500 bucks a week. But gasoline was 17 cents a gallon. A, uh, the downtown Grady Manning Hotel was less than $5 a night. A buffet that all you could eat was a buck and a quarter. A six pack was a buck and a quarter. So, if you were, if you were making 40, 50 bucks a night, 60 bucks, 70 bucks a night, you were putting money in the bank. Well, so Bruno said, so now what are you making back home? I told him, he said, now what are you making here? And I said, oh, 1500 1400 a couple thousand every now and then. So he said, but you're not getting paid fair, so you want to go back there where you think Leroy McGurk is paying you fair, and that's where you want to work. And I thought, it doesn't make much sense, does it? He <laughs> said, well, not to me, but he said, I don't know how you guys from Oklahoma figure your math. So, I mean, he, he, he had a way of mentoring you. And so then as we, it, they teamed us with him, meet us together a lot. And I'll tell you one thing about it. He was, he, he could have commanded whatever he wanted, but he shared the income because he was the big draw. They put me with him to status as a team. And then when they bring a hot, the new hot heel in, the final guy, the new hot heel had to wrestle, uh, was, was me. And then he beat, if he beat me, he'd be ready for Bruno. So it was kind of a process back there that, that worked like a charm for them. I mean, it worked like a charm. And so uh, that's what he, that's what he did. And I, the, then the top guy, uh, you know, would, would, would go against me. So we did that and I got a lot of benefits out of it. I mean, you know, I mean, heck, I got to 
appear with Bruno in tag matches in the garden and everywhere else and all this. But, you know, as we went through this process with a lot of guys, and I'll tell you actually how I got over back east was Vince booked me against Killer Kowalski in Washington, D.C., and we went to a 20-minute draw. And that 20-minute draw, because Kowalski was a vegetarian, and his conditioning was unbelievable. And he was nonstop. And so that, that, that big draw, because I could stay with him. I was a young and I was in shape. That draw, they saw, it tore the place down. And, 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 and Kowalski just had such a tenacious style. That's what made me a star. And they booked me in Kowalski everywhere. And that's what got me over in New York. So, again, as I moved on up, I became Bruno's partner. And then there was a, a, an inner office deal back then. One guy in the business Bruno hated with a passion was a guy named Buddy Rogers. He was, he'd been a yeah. huge star all over the United States. And, but Buddy was a, and Buddy was a fabulous showman, but Buddy was a treacherous guy. And so he, 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 he uh, pulled some things on Bruno and then Bruno got so mad. Bruno slammed him on the steps and beat the crap out of him. So Bruno got uh, suspended. And he couldn't work anywhere. Back then, the commissions had such power, he could not work anywhere. His wife was sick, and she was in the hospital and having to have different things done. And I mean, so Bruno was in dire straits, and he had to come back and apologize to Buddy Rogers and, 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 and uh, to be able to, to work again. And he hated it. But this time, he went around to all the, comm- all the commissions and he sent all of them a, a letter of notice, and he gave his notice, and he left, and he went to to uh, Toronto for Frank Tunney. And Frank Tunney, he got over up there. I mean, this guy's a legitimate. He's a he's a, he's he's real Italian, for one thing, and the Italians loved him, and he and he got over, and and in and in the fight and in the gripe, Vince was telling him that telling Tunney that he was. He was he was he was not worthy that he he was this and he was that and the other, and he talked Tunney into where Tunney started having him beat. So and Bruno did his jobs. He did exactly what he's supposed to do, and yet the people still loved him. And Tunney finally said, "Wait a minute, I'm crazy. This kid is doing everything I've asked." And so Tunney quit knocking him off. And so then Bruno got over so strong. I mean, he got over so so strong that he was selling out up there. Well, in the meantime. Rogers was trying to pull a maneuver on Vince where he ended up with part of the territory, he and a guy named Ray Fabiani. And so they had a big thing going. And so there was a lot of crap going on. And Rogers knew he had them kind of by, by the short hair, so to speak. And so anyway, the bottom line is Vince came up and talked Bruno into coming back to New York. And he really needed him in New York. And so, but when Bruno came back, one caveat he made, well, he told Vince if he had to work with Buddy Rogers, he was going to go over right in the middle, right in the middle, one, two, three, and if Buddy Rogers gave him any crap, he was going to beat the crap out of him. I mean, he hated Buddy Rogers that bad. So to make a long story short, he came back and he went over Buddy Rogers in Madison Square Garden in 43 seconds, and Buddy thought it would kill the town. And then Vince would have to have him back. But it didn't, because they brought Monsoon out, and Bobby Davis was Monsoon was the uh, manager, and all Bobby did was make the promos. And Monsoon was a Manchurian giant, and Monsoon got over like a million bucks. So 
So the bottom line is this thing just kept on going. And that's what happened. Well, did I get there? And they've had all this success. And I'll be darned if, if still that temptation and that old friendship Vince had with Buddy. Buddy's watching me get over, and he decides, well, let's do a deal where I come out of retirement and I'll manage Cowboy Bill Watts, and he'll turn, he'll double-cross Bruno, and he'll make all this money. So that really appealed to Vince. And the go-between they had me was, was Wild Red Berry, because Wild Red threw Buddy, and, and he brought me. So they had Wild Red Berry set up the deal with Buddy to, to introduce me to Buddy. Now, I'm dumb and don't have a clue what's happened at this point. But anyway, I get there and I get to meet Buddy, and he's he's good at whining and dining and showing you, showing you the stars and everything else. I mean, you know, he was a huge star. Here, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a young nobody. So I went there, and and then he's laying all this out. Well, when he's laying all this out, what I do know is how bad Bruno San Martino hates him, and Bruno has been a friend to me, a mentor to me, and has put me in a position to make a lot of money without requiring anything of me, and it really bothered me. So I finally, I went and, and, and privately told Bruno. The problem being was I couldn't, we couldn't really talk about it or, or let them know that I had told him. And Bruno said, okay, I can handle that. Don't worry. And what he did is he sent his fan club manager, who's a friend of Buddy's wife down there, and she talked to them naturally. She told her all about it. So that, that that way Bruno could confront Vince and say, look, that's not our deal. And that's not the deal I'm going for. So this is really this is really high intrigue, I want to tell you. It's more than anything I've ever been in. <laughs> so bottom line is that, that, that that's what came about on, on, on this thing. And in the meantime, Bruno and I got to put together a deal. I said, well, look, I can make the most money I can make is if I wrestled you. And that's when we came up with the angle to have me double-cross Bruno San Martino and go against him. It was out of that friendship. And, 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 and so there was just so much. Now, I left New York after I had my run. I always like to leave while I'm still on top. So I put over the people I need to put over to do business the way it should be done, and I left New York. And Vince had always figured, and I'd always figured I'd come back at the right time. But it just never worked out. My life was on a different path, it, it, and that's fine. I mean, I, you know, because and I didn't know that it wasn't a path that I was designing, like that I was designing this path. It just that's the way it was going, and and, and so I I went to work for Shires, and then from Shires I went with Ganya, and and every guy I went to, I learned so much under them, and, and I learned the things I liked. And I learned the things I didn't like. And people said, they always knew I was going to end up with a promotion. I did not know that. You know, I, I wasn't thinking. It's not like I was in this business and that this game plan was my plan all along. It wasn't. But the growth was there, and, the, and I got to work with everybody. Another thing that happened with me is that I didn't just draw money in New York. Every single place I went to, every single territory, as they used to call it in those days, that I went to, I drew money. And so... That didn't happen for everybody. There's a lot of guys who got over in one area and never got over in another area. You know, so I was I had that uniqueness that just worked out, you know, in that way. But that's what had happened, and and so then uh, Bruno and I never did see each other much after that. But the one or two times we did see each other, you know, with a friendship like Bruno's, it's not high maintenance. When he's your friend, he's your friend. 
And I'm the same way. And so when we did see each other, we could take up and talk and laugh just like we'd always been together. And then one time at a critical time when we were having the quote war in Georgia, uh, and I, Eddie Graham had given me part of the Georgia promotion to come in there and, and, and the star and the help of the booking and the television and everything else. And it was going to lead to Eddie Graham and I working together in Florida later. They did a smart thing. They reached out and they got Vince to give them Bruno to come into Atlanta for one for a big show against us. And I called Bruno and told him what he had, what we just caught up on the phone, told him where I was and what I was doing. He said, oh, he said, now then he said, I'm booked there. And I said, I know you are. He said, is that what you're calling me about? You want to ask me not to go? I said, no, I would never do that. Because I know your word is your bond and you've already committed. I'm just telling you where I am. And he questioned me all about the thing. And I said, this is the deal and this is what's happening. And that's all I wanted you to know is where I am. Well, the town guy Bruno is, there's a friend of his. Now, I realize we haven't been around each other in years. And uh, he said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come there because I promised him I will. I said, I expected you to. He said, but he said, I won't come back. Well, I'm going to tell you, that was a hell of a deal. They got a sellout, but they didn't have him on a regular basis. Vince couldn't have really given him up on a regular basis anyway. You know, I mean, yeah. Vince, Vince uh, because Bruno was too important to... Uh, to New York, but but he but Bruno came. That's the kind of friend he was, the kind of friend that if 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 the friendship, the friendship means something, and that's the kind of guy Bruno Sammartino is and was. So when I when I heard he passed, you know you know you start thinking, no way, no way. I mean this is this guy's a stud. He's going to live forever. He takes care of himself. You know, everything else, you know, that he would have been the last guy that I would have ever thought would pass away. You know, yet here I'm, at the, I'm, at, I'm 78. He was what, 80, 82, you know, so, you know, I'm in that same bubble. I mean, guys in my, our age and, and younger, but you know, it, it really, and I know his wife, Carol, I mean, he loved her. They've been together forever. And here she is, that her health was so, from my understanding, was so touch and go with when he's younger. And now she's 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 outlived it, as far as I know. I haven't talked to Carol either. I, I don't know what, you may know more about what actually was the medical cause. I don't know what the, what the, what the cause was as far as him passing away. But I want to tell you, it hit me, and I wrote a little something about it and sent it out to my friends, uh, you know. I don't, I'm not real involved in social media and stuff like that, but uh, it just, I mean, Bruno Sammartino was a stud, and he was a stud of the old-fashioned venue where, you know, his word was good and you could count on him, and that's the kind of guy he was. And I can't say enough good about him. And, I mean, there was just a lot of different things. You know, there's so many stories I could relate to if we got back. You know, he knew Sinatra and he, and, and, and Jilly Rizzo. Uh, these guys really liked him. I mean. The, the top Italian stars love Bruno Sammartino. You know, that's just how it was. I mean, I, I, I got to meet guys I would have never met because I was his friend. And he was just unassuming about all that. Well, when it comes to his popularity, I'm curious your thoughts as to 
how big he was. I mean, you were there. You were the booker when Dusty Rhodes turned babyface, a major moment. You were the man behind the Junkyard Dog's rise in popularity. You were still partners with Fritz when Kerry and the Von Erichs really took off. Those are examples of guys who really just transcended with popularity. How would you compare Bruno San Martino's popularity in the Northeast when you were there to their popularities later? I, I think it's really pretty simple. Uh, you mentioned when we started this broadcast that I had four matches with San Martino headlining in the garden, right? Well, I think probably in my, all the main events in the garden, maybe I had five, four, five, or six. I think there was a couple of tag team main events and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I don't remember the exact sequence. So I, let's say I had five or six even maybe six times that I was a headliner in Madison Square Garden, which Madison Square Garden, no matter what, was the mecca of sports at that time, was the mecca. And as a matter of fact, I was the first guy that broke the, the mainstream media line when Vince got a deal where they did it. The Saturday Evening Post did a big story on me called The Rich Full Life of a Bad Guy because I was a heel in New York. And they had a guy named Myron Cope from Pittsburgh who was with me for seven days to write the story. Matter of fact, Myron is the guy, my understanding is, he's the guy that came up with the idea of the terrible towel in Pittsburgh for the Steelers. So anyway, that's how big it was and how big that stardom was for me was that made me a, 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 a national star with all that publicity and everything out of New York. Okay, so we, we've established my credentials in the garden. Bruno San Martino headline. Madison Square Garden, 187 times, I believe. 187 times he was the main event. Now, give that a perspective, and I think you have just answered your own question. I think you have just answered your own question. Yeah, no one had that star was he? That's right. Well, that was, yes, 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 longevity. You're 100% right. But it, but again, the big thing about how big a star he was you know, is that's that that tells you right there. That tells you. I mean, he was a huge star, and 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 again, he was a star. I mean, you know, he got this guy was was a was a. I never heard him complain about. You know, I mean, he got hurt several times. You know, I, I one night in the garden we had a we had a deal where 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 it was a Texas death match, which turned out to be another return uh, because we understood the mechanics. And so, in a Texas death match, there's no disqualification, no count out, nothing. I mean, if you lose, you lose. Well, we we did a thing in that in that deal where I ended up kicking him in the testicle. And the referee and the commissioner came in and disqualified me, which played perfectly, perfectly into what we wanted because it gave us a whole nother match. So these were some of the things that were happening. And, and that's just how big it was. You got to realize this is back when people took their wrestling seriously. You know, I, I'll, I'll never forget Sting one time told me, said, well, Bill, the business has changed a lot since you were out of it. I said, yeah, you guys don't have to fight your way to the ring. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I said, because you guys, because you guys, because I said, you guys have given the business away. <laughs> <laughs> but on that topic, here you are, and Bruno had a lot of big opponents, big heels that he wrestled against, but that wasn't you. Right. You were his friend, and you turned on him. 
What was that That's kind right. of heat like for you in the Northeast? It was unbelievable. It was the most, it was the, the heat was so intense. As a matter of fact, it was, some of the things that I did back then, you could not do today. Uh, I, you know, it was my heat, when I wrestled Bobo Brazil in Washington, D.C., was so intense. I mean, you just, you, you know, I, I'm lucky I didn't get killed. I was so young and dumb. <laughs> the things I said then, you couldn't even say today. You couldn't say them on television. And, I, and, and Myron Cope was with me when I went in against Bobo in Washington, D.C., and he wanted to feel what it was felt like to be at ringside when this, <laughs> when this thing happened. And, well, by the time it took 40 policemen to get me to ringside. Now, this after I turned on Bruno. And Bobo, was, you could you could have a sellout with Bobo. Jimmy, you got one match with Bobo. But Bobo was another super guy, and Bobo had a belief in me. And, and so Bobo and I had this thing in, 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 in there. And, and anyway, it took 40 policemen to get me to the ring. They ended up putting a, a, a wire, uh, like a, a, a fence wire screen over the entryway where I came, so the people... And the people had urinated in in, a, in buckets and threw the urine on me. Oh, took me fo- took forty people to get me to the ring. And Myron Cope tells me he's with me. He said, "Bill, get the police to take me back." He said, "They're going to kill you." <laughs> well, and and, and and let me say this: Bobo was such a, a a good guy, and here I am, this young guy in the business. And I caught, I went and talked to Bobo before the match, and I said, "Bobo." I got a way, you always get one match with a guy and you go over right in the middle. And I said, that, Jeremy, that guy's run. I said, I got a way where we could get two or three matches out of this deal. He said, yeah, Cowboys? I said, yeah. He said, tell me. And I told him. And he said, wow, that's a good idea. He said, that's money. I said, that's money. I said, we can get two or three matches out of this. Whatever it needs to be, the ending will still be the same. You will still be the guy. He said, okay, cowboy. And I said, but I said, Vince is not going to listen to me as young as I am. He will listen to you because you're his star. He said, yeah, but cowboy, I could never explain this to him. I don't, I don't know how to explain this to him. So he said, I'll tell you what, I'll get Vince in here. He said, I'll start talking to him. You be in there in the bathroom and I'm going to call you in to explain it to him. And that's what he did. And we ended up getting three three matches out of this out of this run with Bobo and I in Washington D.C. Now you got to remember how bad this was. This was when Equal Rights Amendment had been signed, yeah. and the racism was really big. And 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 the blacks had 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 rioted and were burning Washington D.C. Yeah, this is 1965. We're talking right, and I, yet I would be down in the black area eating barbecue and drinking beer. And the cops would say, are you crazy? They're going to kill you. I said, they hate me in the ring. But they're wrestling fans. They love me as a wrestler. And I'm down here, and I'm down here with some of the toughest guys, some of the toughest black guys I know, and I don't have to worry about anything. I'm having a ball. (laughs) That's just how it was. I mean, there was a way, and I didn't understand all the ramifications that was going on then, but but you know, I already knew that that I hated racism. I, I, that I that I hated the fact, and I thought that racism was based on ignorance. That, that when you take and condemn a whole group of people based on their skin color, 
are based on something like being Jewish or something. I, I just find that has to be complete evil. It, it has it's complete evil, and it's complete ignorance. Yeah. And I just I just I just never I could never get there. I just couldn't get there. And so anyway, the the bottom line is that that Bobo and I got those matches out of it, and then that's how hot it was. That's that's how hot that angle was. I know that I was dating my who became my wife at the time, and we had to go to some town outside New York City. The angle had 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 already played, and I was in a tag match with Bruno at that night because it was already booked. We had to follow through with those. So of course we went to the ring. And then I turned around and walked out on him and left him there again. And I had told her, I said, when, when the promoter brings me out of the dressing room, do not acknowledge me, do not look at me, don't do anything. Just head for the door I'm heading for so we can get outside because they would always set it up for the main event. They'd get out and they put a tag match or something on last to give you right. time to get out. Yeah. So anyway, I said, I, we will get out, but don't look at me, don't do anything. I'll be darned if she didn't look at me and they mobbed her and I had to go battle my way in to get her to pull her out. <laughs> Scared her to death. So I mean, yeah, there was some there was some tremendous heat. And it and it was yeah, and let me just say this, that deal in Washington DC with Bobo, when when they did riot that night, because I went over it and he'd never lost there. And 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 it they were coming in the ring, opening up knives, saying, we'll cut him for you, Bobo. And I and Phil Zacco, bless his heart, Phil Zacco was watching everything and realized that they'd overrun the, they'd overrun the 40 policemen. The 40 policemen were totally overrun. And, and they, they couldn't get me out. And the, 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 the people were gathered at the dressing room where, you had, where I had to go. And Phil Zacco caught my eye on all this. I was hoping a rope would drop down out of the ceiling. Or, you know, you start thinking, gee, where's my mother? I was, you know, <laughs> the craziest thoughts because this thing was an out of control riot. And I mean, you're talking, you've never been in a deal so you've been in a, the focal point of an out of the control riot. I mean, it, with, with the numbers, because if you ever get off your feet, they're going to hammer you into the middle of next year. So anyway, uh, that's what I was doing. And Phil Zacco got my eye. And, and, and we, uh, he, he signified me to go the other way because the dressing room was cut off. So I made the move for the other way. And I think I put, uh, like eight, 17 or 18 people went to the hospital that night. And, and I mean, Phil said, my gosh, you were hitting men, women, anybody. Got, I said, Phil, I didn't have time to check health cards and IDs. Anybody that was got in my, between me and where I was trying to go, I hit them. I mean, you know, this thing was out of control. You got to keep moving. It was out of control. That's, yes. And see, Johnny Valentine had told me way back. I mean, some of the old timers, they used to educate you in all this because they went through it. They knew what you were going to do if you were a, a big heel. And Johnny Valentine said, you know, you keep, you go through the crowd. And he said, you keep your arms swinging and you're going to look in both ways. And he said, if one guy stands his ground like he's going to take you on, when you get to him, go around him. I said, go around him. He said, yeah. As soon as you hit him, you lit the fire. You have lit the fire as soon as you hit him. So go around him. And he'll just be standing there like, what just happened? How, what just happened? <laughs> you know? And so, the, you know, you learn so much. You know, and you tell the policeman, you know, say, look, 
You're taking me to the ring and from the ring. Do not grab my arms for anything. Under no condition, grab my arms. If you grab my arms, I'm going to be hitting you. I will keep my arms moving. I'm going to be moving to that ring. And you had to get in and you had to get out. And the, the time to get out was right then, right when the finish was over. Fred Blassie was a hot heel. And we were on an outdoor show in, 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 in New Jersey. And I'll be damned, they helped, the, 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 the police and them kept him in the ring after the finish. My guess, they almost got him killed because that let the crowd gather. And the next thing you know, they're starting to sail those metal chairs. They're throwing the damn metal chairs. And Fred Blass, he's stuck in the ring. And he's cussing them out, you know, because you've got to get out right now in the day, get back in the day. Not now, because, you know, everybody. No one has everybody, heat. <laughs> oh, that's that, the they don't know what heat is today. Yeah. They've never experienced it. And that's the kind of things that you went through. And there was some, you know, I mean, they try to get your car. I came out of a show in North, South Norwalk, Connecticut, and they're trying to rock my car to turn it over. And I had to fight my way there and knock them off the car. My tag partner at that time was a guy named Smasher Sloan. So, I mean, we had some, we had some crazy times, man. There was a riot in West Hempstead, Long Island. And, and uh, you know, it was my first lawsuit, <laughs> and, and, you know. But I was fighting for my life, and I had to go to trial. And, 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 and the office hired this guy to represent me that wanted, back then, $750 just to go to my arraignment. I said, hell, I can go to my own arraignment. All I got to do there is plead not guilty. Yeah. I'm not paying you 750 to go to an arraignment. So, so anyway, the office kind of got upset with me because he was, he was their pick. But, I mean, you know, that was crazy. So what I did do while I was up there, I got to know the police. And stuff that worked our matches, and I and I started asking around of who was the best criminal defense lawyer up there, and they pointed me to a guy. He said, "This guy tries the cases, you know. He he doesn't just he doesn't just make you know so many lawyers. They they make they they're, they're good at compromising, but they don't go to court. Well, hell, I didn't want to pay him, so I got this. I I went and told this guy my story of what had happened, and he took the case, and he was really really good." So we went to court on the thing. We had to, and we won the case because they had, you know, the first, the thing of it is the guy was, the guy was nowhere near his seat. He'd, he'd run and tried to jump me as I went back into the, back into the dressing room. But that's always what it is, isn't it? That the heel wrestler just beats up the innocent fan for no reason. They're just sitting there minding their own business, behaving perfectly. (laughs) Oh yeah. 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 I had another one down in Florida that was hilarious. We won't go into that now, but you're exactly right. And only this gal, her, her family was trying to sue me because she'd had some kind of stroke or something. And she had, she had, she had cut me. She had cut me with a, with a, uh, a small knife or a fingernail file or something. And all I'd done is I felt it, I felt it get me. And I reached back around. And when I reached back around, I grabbed her. And I didn't even know I, I was moving toward the restaurant. And I swung it, and she was so tiny, it threw her against the concrete wall. <laughs> and then, so the next thing you know, it's like, oh, my gosh, I did all this stuff to destroy her life. And they wanted me to pay for her, uh, being her, the home that they needed to keep her in and all. Yeah, that was a whole other story. And it had a funny ending. Though. It had a terrifically funny ending. But, uh, uh, and, I, and, and, and we won it because the judge was a very smart judge, and he tried it in his chambers. And that's another story for another time. But it's, but anyway, so that, you know, you, you went through a lot. You learned a lot of things about life and about business and about the world. 
uh, you know, but, but you see, you, you, you got to be around guys that had spent their life in the business and, and they, they would teach you. And the Bruno Sammartino, again, was uh, just a phenomenal human being. And I'm sure all of Pittsburgh is mourning, all the rest of the world is mourning because he was one of those guys that surpassed. And as we said, 187 times. Are you kidding me? The headliner of the garden? I don't think anybody's ever done that or ever will do that. It's a shame that Bill Watts never did get to go back and have another run there at some point in the 70s. It would have been really interesting based on their history, him going back in there. But as he said in that interview, his life was on a different path. And he did so many other things in wrestling. He never did get to go back to New York and wrestle Bruno again. But he is one of Bruno's all-time most famous opponents. John, when you think of Bruno feuds, when you think of Bruno opponents, what kind of guys, what kind of feuds come to mind? Well, first of all, I would have loved to see to have seen the Bill Watts, you know, his turn and his series against Bruno. I think Bill Watts is one of the greatest, not only one of the greatest baby faces of all time, one of the greatest heels of all time. I mean, Bill knew how to talk. He was a big guy. He knew how to be condescending, and he just had that that attitude about him. So I, I would have loved to have seen that. Um, Ray Morgan hated him. From what I understand, after he turned heel. Ray Morgan legitimately didn't like him anymore. <laughs> oh, right. I think Ray's getting a little bit caught up in things, but that's okay. <laughs> um, the first real Bruno feud I ever saw that I remembered was superstar Billy Graham in late 1975 into early 1976. Graham was a guy we all know. He had a ton of charisma, but he was like something we'd never seen before. He was this bodybuilder who you'd look at and you'd say, okay, this guy can match Bruno in the strength department, which we had some guys that you look at and say, ah, maybe, but probably not. You looked at Graham and you said, no, this guy's probably stronger than Bruno. And Graham had so much else going on for him that, yeah, I was too young to go to the Boston Garden and see it, but yeah, I'd certainly go to bed at night dreaming about being able to see it. Um, another great feud, Spiros Arion. Uh, this is in 1975. He had such a great heel arrogance about him. He was just such a nasty person, or at least it seemed like it on TV, and you just wanted to go, you wanted to go to the arena and just see Bruno shut this guy's mouth and cave his head in because he was, again, just such a nasty person on TV. Um, another great one, obviously, is Stan Hansen uh, from 1976. Uh, we're actually hoping that this show drops on April 26th uh, of 2018, which is the 42nd anniversary of the match where Stan Hansen dropped Bruno on his head and legitimately broke his neck. Stan, life was a dangerous place for Stan Hansen in the Northeast after that. People were legitimately coming after him because they he had done serious harm to Bruno. That led to the big Shea Stadium match uh, in 1976, and then they had a sellout steel cage match at Madison Square Garden. Uh, they also did, Bruno and Hansen also did sellouts in Boston, and they actually came back with a tag team match to start it off. It was Ivan Putski and Bruno Sammartino against Stan Hansen and Ivan Koloff, which definitely sounds like a fun match. Yeah. Another underrated feud, I think, with Bruno 
He wrestled Nikolai Volkov in 1974 and then again in 1976, but then in 1979, when Bruno was in an announcer's role and obviously no longer champion, they did an angle where Nikolai Volkov and Fred Blassie attacked him on TV. You know, once again, instant box office. This feud was it was a set, it was the second match down at Madison Square Garden, but they did I want to say I, I want to say two main events in Boston. Um, and then, of course, I would say probably the best Bruno feud of all was the one with Larry Zbysko. Um And again, I mentioned this earlier. I was young, and I did not see this coming. It was a feud. You know, I don't, I don't even know what feud you could really compare Bruno versus Zabisco to because there was so much psychology, and it was, it was actually deep and detailed. Larry comes out on TV, and he says, you know, one week he just – Bruno wants to interview him, and Larry walks away, and they're like, oh, I guess Larry duh, didn't hear Bruno calling for him or something. And then they do an interview with Larry where he's like, look, I'm, I'm tired of living in Bruno's shadow. I'm tired of people saying, hey, there goes little Bruno. I need to have a match against Bruno Sammartino. Bruno initially refuses. Larry threatens to retire if he doesn't get his match. So Bruno eventually accepts, but he says, you know, I'm not going to try to hurt Larry. Well, they go into the ring, and this is – got to understand, this is Larry Zbysko's – his most important moment in his career and Bruno's treating it like a workout. And you could, I think the average person can see why Larry Zabisco got pissed and you see him getting more and more frustrated and angry as the match goes on. Not only is Bruno not taking this terribly seriously, but Larry can't touch him. You know, Bruno's just better than this guy. And then Larry eventually snaps and hits him with the chair. And like I said, you you come out of it saying, I don't blame Zabisco for being pissed, even though he overreacted. And then as the weeks went on, Larry just, you know, became more and more heelish. And they threw in what I thought was an interesting little ingredient into that feud. When Larry Zabisco would wrestle on TV after the turn, Bruno and uh, Vince McMahon would be doing commentary, and Bruno would refuse to speak, and he let it be known, I have nothing to say about Larry Zbysko. And and Vince McMahon would just do commentary by himself, and Bruno would sit there silently. So I, I thought that was a great feud, and at the end where uh, they have the, the, uh, the cage match at Chase Stadium, and Bruno wins, and Larry walks up and you know, raises, his, raises Bruno's hand. And Bruno kind of shoves him away. <laughs> yeah, Bruno kind of brushes him off, but Larry's like, hey, the better man won. And usually, you know, obviously, the heels don't do that. They just sit there and whine. Not, not this time. Well, it really elevated Larry. Like you said, it really was the most important moment of his career, not just because his hair was uh, in much better shape than it was during his Tony Garea tag team days, but he had been a mid-card guy at best. He had been a guy, he had the tag team title run with Tony Garea, but he wasn't really a top-of-the-card guy, and this thing with Bruno instantly elevated him there, and it's a shame that he did leave the Northeast pretty quickly because he never did get a run with Backlund or really get to do much else, but... Bruno successfully elevated Larry. No one didn't believe that Larry should be in those matches with Bruno after the angle. You know what? I The one thing I would have changed about that angle, Larry should have been showing some improvement on television. Like, just give him a throwaway win against, like, Johnny Valiant or Bobby Duncombe or something on television. Because, like I said, it was... 
for me watching it, I thought it was just going to be as simple as, okay, well, you know, Larry just demonstrated that he's not in Bruno's league when they did the match against him. So if you're going to see Zabisco versus Bruno San Martino, you're basically going just to see Larry get his ass kicked and getting what he deserves. That really was towards the end of Bruno's career because that's 1980. He retires by 81, of course. He does have a lawsuit against the WWF and Vince McMahon or Capital Wrestling. I forget exactly who it was against, but it was for a number of things, including, I believe, he was upset that he wasn't getting paid any of the money that was coming in for when HBO aired the MSG shows in the 70s was one of the things I recently read in an interview with Bruno about that. But they bring him back in 84 as things start going with the national expansion and they make him the color commentator. He instantly lends credibility and he's instantly over because they're filming everything in the Northeast. He's already that living legend. He was the living legend just a few years into his career, wasn't he? He was. And if I could take you back a little bit, you talked about how the Zabisco feud was kind of the end of Bruno's career. The Saturday after the Shea Stadium show, we had a new color commentator sitting next to Vince McMahon. It was Pat Patterson. That's right. So they took Bruno right off TV. Bruno was the only one who didn't completely butcher the English language. It was Antonino Rocca, then Bruno, then Patterson, and then back to Bruno. <laughs> but... Bruno San Martino, you know, some of the other feuds people obviously talk about. I remember when I was a kid, my dad wasn't a wrestling fan, but he knew Bruno San Martino and Killer Kowalski didn't like each other. So that's like one of the ones that everyone talks about, Kowalski and Bruno. And of course, they had matches in the 60s, they had matches in the 70s. So many people think of them together. Monsoon, when they elevated him in 63 after Buddy left, that was a big deal. People still talk about Bruno and Monsoon. People talk about Bruno. You hear that he body slammed Haystack Calhoun. I think he just lifted him up, which was impressive enough. I'm not saying that wasn't impressive. And uh, you obviously heard Bill Watts talk about what Bruno could do in the weight room. He was an impressive guy. But let's take a step back. I want to talk to wrestling historian Tom Burke, a friend of the show. Tom actually was a fan before Bruno. And what I mean is Tom remembers wrestling and wrestling magazines before Bruno San Martino was introduced. So I wanted to get his perspective on Bruno, on Bruno's career, on his role in wrestling history, and any personal anecdotes he had. So let's now go to this conversation with wrestling historian Tom Burke. We continue our look at Bruno San Martino today by welcoming back to the program a longtime friend of the show, wrestling historian Tom Burke. Tom, thanks for being here today. Brian, it's always a pleasure to be on your podcast. And I just want to say to all the 605ers out there, buy those t-shirts, kids. <laughs> well, thank you very much. That was a free plug I didn't expect. I appreciate that. But, you know, you have a unique perspective on things because not only are you a wrestling historian, but you're actually someone we could talk to who was a fan before Bruno. You didn't Absolutely. get to see Bruno for a long time. You were a fan before you even heard of Bruno. So let's go back to that period of time. When did you first start reading about Bruno? What did you first start hearing and what did you think? Well, I, I've been a fan since uh, 1958 and Bruno made his debut in 59. However, I didn't hear or see Bruno or read about him to probably about 1960 when he uh, was in one of the issues of like wrestling uh, review magazine or one of the other magazines. And he appeared in Springfield on a, on a show here. And I believe he wrestled with Tiger Jack Vansky. I did not go to the show because mother didn't told me I wasn't going on a school night. Thank you, mom. <laughs> so, but that's beside the point. Uh, so I did not see Bruno actually wrestle 
till I got out of the army in 1960. I got out of the army in 69. I got a job in New York City in 1970. And that's the first time I saw Bruno San Martino uh, wrestle live. I did see him on TV on a snowy black and white TV when they had wrestling from Washington, D.C. on Thursday nights. But it wasn't, um, it wasn't a clear picture, et cetera. But I did see him at various uh, shows, the Sunnyside Garden, uh, the Garden, et cetera, down in the New York City area. He debuts in 59 and taking his blackballing by Vince McMahon Sr. out of the picture. He pretty quickly takes over from Rocca as the box office draw in New York and throughout the Northeast. So while this is happening and you're not seeing him and you're just reading the magazines, what are your impressions as the coverage is starting to come in? The coverage is mostly coming from New York City and you're starting to see this relative newcomer get built up in this way. Well, you know, being a, a, a wrestling fan at the time. And I'll be perfectly honest with you. When the time came in 63, as the built up took place and he, he defeated Rogers for the, for the title, I was always aligned to the NWA, whoever the NWA champion was. And of course the, uh, capital wrestling office gave this scenario that the, um, the match was, um, had to be two out of three falls, blah, 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 and all this, or they used some, some scenario like that. Well, Rogers, of course, wrestled Bruno at the garden. It was only one fall of 48 seconds or something like that. And he got the title and everything. So it was like a little hypocritical. I was like, yeah, I'm Isaac at the time, but, uh, I just wish those days were back sometimes, but in 63, you know, I knew Bruno by the magazines, as you said. I never saw him wrestle till, as again, I said, uh, seven years later in, in 1970. But, uh, you know, you pick up a magazine, he was always there because, you know, they always focused on the New York market, the magazines did. So, you know, I knew him there. And then, of course, you know, he, he was the uh, the second Rocca. Rocca was such a big hit with the ethnic Italians and uh, Latinos in New York City. Because it was always based, a lot of New York City was uh, promotion, East Coast promotion was based on ethnic uh, stars. And Bruno just uh, slid right in after he came back after his um, departure from Vince uh, earlier, you know, but he he definitely was a draw, you know. And of course, you know, I, I don't know if you may re- will recall this, Brian, but a lot of times the st- ethnic stars, Morales included, Spiros, Arion, and Bruno would speak in their native tongue, yeah. being in Italian, Greek, or Spanish. And, of course, this was highlighted in their promos and everything, which, you know, attracted the, the fans into the, um, into the uh, venues. Yeah, and Bruno had such a unique promo style to begin with because, you know, he would get fired up when it was building up to the, the end of a feud with someone, but he would come out there and explain to people why he was feeling the way he did, what he was going to do to his opponent. And like you said, he would speak in some Italian so that if you're sitting at home and you hear that, it really connects with you. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it, it was a, a very personal touch. And, of course, he, he self-promoted himself. You know, there weren't any script writers then, which uh, is another issue I have with the, the product today. But, you know, they all did this, and they, they were able to entice the fans to really attract the fans and to, I got to, I got to go see this match between Bruno and, uh, and, and, and Buddy Rogers or Bruno and Dr. Bill Miller or Bill Watts or whoever he might be wrestling, you know, 
that that was the the big deal there, you know, and it was it was something which definitely attracted the fans. I mean, even the terms that he had uh, uh, with his various opponents, Morales and uh, and Zabisco, you know. So I mean, all this stuff played out very very well for everyone involved. The sign of a professional wrestler becoming successful and being a draw in the early '60s was if Jack Pfeffer created a sound-alike wrestler that he could fool people into thinking could possibly be the original. You didn't get to see Bruno San Martino live until 1970, but considering you grew up in Massachusetts, Tony Santos's territory, Jack Pfeffer's there, we've talked about it on the show. Talk a little bit about Bruno San Martino. Bruno San Martino was uh, was was an interesting character. I mean, you know, was he, he wrestled he eventually wrestled for this uh, McMahon under the, the uh, title of uh, Pancho Valdez. But he he was a stable character in the in in Santos land here, and he also appeared for Jack Pfeffer in Chicago as well. But when he was he was a main eventer at times for Santos, but he was a, a ham and egger. He, he was he was a good hand, you know, but he also was a, a comedian and everything. He had a funny look. Uh, sometimes he didn't have his dentures in, in in the front, and he had these he had a tattoo of an eagle on his chest and long hair. He was a heel. The last time I saw him was the month before I went in the army, so it had to be you had to be uh, February sixty February sixty six. He was in a tag team match. I can't remember who he wrestled in the tag, but I remember his, his tag team partner was Maurice Chevier, who became Chris Colt. Matter of fact, I even I have a picture of them together walking out of the ring. And uh, but he, he was he was a good he was, he was a good hand, you know, nothing spectacular. He definitely was not on the same par as his um, the original Bruno, but he 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 had a um, a, a, a charisma that the fans enjoyed. He was completely the opposite of Bruno in terms of appearance and work in the ring. Oh, absolutely. But yeah. what was it like absolutely. when he does go to work for Vince McMahon Sr.? He does go to the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, and Bruno's there, and Bruno's already the living legend. What is it like when Bruno meets or runs into his Jack Pfeffer impersonator? Well, I, I don't know exactly. All I, all I know is this. Abe Ford was a WWF Tri-WF representative here in New England at late 60s and early 70s. Abe Ford had taken out a little ad in the Boston Herald stating that Bruno San Martino will, the real Bruno San Martino will only appear at Boston Garden, blah, 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 etc. And I asked Bruno that about that ad when I had my radio show in 91. And Bruno, Bruno was totally unaware of, the, of that ad. And I asked, I said, Did, was there ever anything said in the office about Bruno, Sam, your, your namesake, the other name, the other Bruno in New England? And he said, never. Now, I don't know if he was working me or what, but that's what he said. So I just, I just found that interesting. Now, I, didn't, I never asked him about his personal contact with Valdez because they definitely worked on shows together. But I, uh, I, I just wonder how that, I, I really wonder how that went. You know, Tom, someone whose name has come up in multiple segments on this show, and I think any episode about Bruno you have to, is Georgianne Orsi, Georgianne Macropolis. She had so many last names. Who can keep count? But 
<laughs> you're reading about Bruno in the magazines. Of course, she was the president of the Buddy Rogers fan club and then the Bruno San Martino fan club. But her relationship with Bruno really went beyond just fan club president and wrestler. She was really in many ways his confidant. And she really was someone who kept him informed about what was happening in the wrestling world. Talk a little bit about that, because I know when you moved to New York later on, you probably got to see a little bit of that firsthand, but talk a little bit about Georgianne and her relationship with Bruno. Well, when I first met Georgianne, it would have been in, let's see, uh, it would have been in 1970. I, I started at Trailways in uh, April of 1970, so probably like May or June, I met, I met her. I wrote her a letter, and blah, blah, blah. And um, there was a, a Guardian show coming up. This I was I was not involved in the magazines at this point. And I went to the show. I was she was able to get me good tickets. She had she had her, she had ways through uh, the office to get tickets. So I got tickets. And I we all used to meet at the lounge up by the bowling alley and have have uh, have some chow and then go to the show at the Garden. And uh, but she was extremely influential. We talked almost all the time, and you know, with, uh, she gave me her phone number. We'd call, and she she gave me you know, bits and pieces of information, but it was selected information. But I know that she had a uh, very good and intense relationship with Bruno and others as well in the WWF. She always had that ringside seat there. I think that she was the eyes and ears for Bruno. In many, in many, yeah. many ways, yeah. not only with not only within the, the 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 world of fandom, but also with within wrestling itself and meeting other people and getting getting vibes. And I'm sure uh, the information got back to Bruno from her. Absolutely, and uh, I think it's something that people will know. John Arezzi here on this episode talked about being in that lounge by the bowling alley before. Bruno won the world title, but Georgianne had been tipped off, so the celebration began before the show started. So there's a good example right. of her getting the information before anyone else would have had it in the mid-70s. Exactly, exactly. She definitely was, uh, uh, as, you, as you said, a confidant uh, for Bruno, and she definitely had that role in his life. And uh, I think that it also shows Bruno's acceptance of certain people in his life too that aren't aren't fellow wrestlers as well yeah that's a good point and bruno always did seem to have a very special relationship not just with his fans but there certainly were a select group of fans you know led by georgianne well, who... well yeah i i i i have i have two stories to share i have one story to share with you on that which uh i i'll i'll, I'll uh, mention uh now as as you know bruno was a um a victim of, of World War II. Uh, he was under uh, uh, under the Nazis when yeah. with his mother and uh, the remaining family family members. Um, he came to the United States, as we all know, story and blah blah blah. But the, the, an interesting fact is that there was there's a gentleman. I don't know uh, if you know who he is. Uh, I, I'll mention his name, Walt Walonsky. Who is yeah. uh, from, from? You know Walter, okay? Early Walt, tape Walt trader, from, yeah, yeah. Walt is from the um, Philadelphia area, New Jersey. He happens to be a Ukrainian. His father uh, escaped the Nazis as well, in the same way that uh, Bruno did after you know after the war as a, a DP displaced person. 
Walter was very keen in wrestling, still is. Matt Bruno introduced his uh, Bruno to his father, and they chatted, and you know, they, Bruno learned his history, and they, so they had this common bond. Bruno would call up Walter and ask him how his father was doing, and when Walter's father became ill. Bruno would call the father, you know, tell him I thinking about him and talk to him and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, it, it was, it was a special bond, a bond that you and I will never, will never. And I hope to God never have to go through Yeah, that is escaping that Nazi thing or a war of that, of that level. So, you know, it was, it's just amazing. You, I, I stopped and think about it. So, so that, that's, as you said uh, a minute ago about his relationship with fans, it wasn't, overly public in the sense it was more private, you know, and I think that's how he liked to liked it to be. Well, for the first time in wrestling podcast, we're about to make a transition from Wolanski to Kowalski. Cause I want to ask you, Tom, <laughs> of course, everyone knows you had a great friendship with killer Kowalski, Walter, as you know him, because you were his friend. Killer Kowalski may be the most famous, or at least he's in the top five of Bruno's opponents, because even casual fans or people who weren't big wrestling fans, those were two names that they knew, and those were two names in the Northeast that they knew didn't like each other, Bruno San Martino and Killer Kowalski. But I'm sure all the time you spent around Killer Kowalski, he must have talked about Bruno. They did not like each other publicly. But on a personal note, they, they were very good friends. As a matter of fact, uh, remember Bruno when he had the the, the fro? <laughs> yes, he had the Lou Alcindor. Yes, <laughs> yes. He he went to a um, a hair specialist. You know, blah blah blah. He told Walter Kowalski about this. Kowalski went out and met the guy, and they fitted him with a toupee. You know, <laughs> yeah. we're at a, we're at a show in Worcester, and Bo Curry comes in. He hasn't seen Walter in twenty five years. Curry looks up at Walter and he says, "Okay, Kowalski, your hair looks like shit." <laughs> I thought we were that myself, Mike Madison, and a couple of the other boys were there. I thought we were going to die. I thought, <laughs> and the Kowalski was, what? "We're going to do it." You know, it's so funny. But it was, it, but the association between. Kowalski and Bruno was on a personal level thing, and they they were friends. What about Fez? Because I know you had a relationship with Fez, and obviously Fez was NWA, Bruno was WWWF, and they never really did anything, you know, after Bruno became the world champion in New York, but there were attempts to do stuff, at least between Sam Mushnick and Vince McMahon Sr. and Tootsmont. What about Fez? Did he ever talk about Bruno with you? Yes, he did. Now, of course, this, uh, as I recall, what Lou said that Bruno was a good, a good was strong in the ring, and he was a good wrestler. That he, he uh, Lou wrestled Bruno twice in ball in uh, not in Toronto, and before Bruno uh, Bruno beat Rogers for the title, uh, one was I think went with a draw, and then the other the other one that uh, Fez went over. But he, he he I think he respected him, you know. But as years progressed, I think Bruno became more, more of a of a rough guy in, in the ring. His wrestling techniques has had 
slow down and everything. Whereas Thez, when he got older, I think he just he just continued wrestling as he was. I don't think you know. I mean, uh, it seems to me that as I, my recollection is that Thez respected him, but I think even in, in Thez's book, he had mentioned something to the effect that Bruno was more of a roughhouser, or, or something. Maybe, maybe that's not the right word, but uh, maybe a brawler or something. But I and later his later life, but uh, I I'd have to look at that book again and get the quote. They probably were able to get along with each other due to their mutual dislike of Buddy Rogers. They probably could bond over that. <laughs> Man, that's a possibility. <laughs> that's a great possibility. Tom, Bruno makes his debut in the Garden at the beginning of 1960. His opponent, Wild Bull Was Curry. Wild Bull Curry and, and Bull did the job. You know, one of the things we think about with Bruno was... And I don't mean this in any sort of disrespectful way. If anyone wants to take it that way, that's not what I'm saying. But Bruno held tight to kayfabe until the very end. Oh, absolutely. And Bruno, you know, we talk about how he was so terrific with his fans and there were certain people he let in, but he was very respectful in keeping kayfabe to the very end. Even the shoot interviews he did, he never explicitly says anything, but he implies things. And if you know what he's talking about, you can figure it out. But what about like way back, like in the fan club days when you had WFIA? Did you ever deal with Bruno? Um, yes, we did. Uh, I was the, involved in the WFIA in hierarchy. Uh, in 1969, we ran a convention in Pittsburgh, which was, of course, Bruno's town. Bruno was the um, unaf- he was not the public promoter. Ace Freeman was, but he was the actual guy behind the scenes. Uh, when um, the convention was proposed and the, the, the Freeman accepted, not thinking, I guess, of anything, uh, Bruno Bruno gave the word that um, none of the boys were to show up. Uh, he didn't want baby faces or heels together or any acknowledgement, even separately, to be there. He was totally um, kayfabe. He said to Don Wilson, who was the president, of the, uh, he was the founder of the WFIA, executive director, he says, I, I don't want this to be like an Academy Awards show. You know, that, that's how, that's how, that, that was his mental state. Two of the guys showed up at, 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 at the convention, Killer Kowalski and Tony Marino. Tony Marino came Sunday, the last day of the convention. Kowalski got on the podium and had said publicly that no one tells me where I can go and who I can speak to. And which was, you know, you know, what's 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 Bruno going to do with Kowalski is his arch rival. You know, he can't fire him. But uh, it took it took the zoos for uh, for Walter to do that. And I I, re, I, I respected him from that day on. And uh, and Tony Marino as well. Tony Marino came that Sunday, the last day. And, you know, just walked around, talked to people and blah, blah, blah. Very cordial, you know, but he was not political about it. But the actions is political. And, you know, uh, that was the only time that I can recall Bruno ever having anything to do with a WFIA convention. Years later, when John Arezzi would run a convention and the mentality, the mental state of wrestlers changed, Bruno accepted and attended a convention for John Arezzi. And, of course, I think he did other, I know he did other signings and uh, what do they call them, uh, Russell Cons, et cetera, over the years, more recently. 
I brought up how, because the magazines were all located or mostly located in New York, Bruno ended up on the covers of so many of them. But beyond that, from your experience working for the wrestling magazines, how much of a boost in sales did you get by having Bruno on the cover? Oh, absolutely. I, I think, uh, well, I'll give you a prime example. Ring Magazine. Uh, Nat Bay, who is the editor uh, of uh, and publisher of Ring Wrestling, he was very good friends with Arnie Scullin. And Arnie would take the magazines, the Ring Wrestling magazines, and sell them at the venues and when it was WWF or Tri-WF. And, you know, that was a big plus. And, of course, when you have Bruno on the cover and your WWF stars, naturally the sales would rise. And as for uh, that would be in-house at the arenas. And then, of course, you have uh, the after, after magazines and the other magazines on the newsstands with Bruno on the cover as well. And, you know, that, that, that was a plus, you know, and it would, uh, I'm sure that their sales numbers would increase when they'd have Bruno on the cover rather than, say, Tex McKenzie. Yeah, of all the people for you to compare Bruno San Martino to, Tex well, McKenzie. That's, that's, <laughs> no, because there was an issue. There was an issue of wrestling world where there's a cover of Tex McKenzie. It just dawned on my head. And I believe there's a landfill somewhere filled. Yeah, there's a landfill someplace <laughs> too. Well, let me ask you this, Tom. You know, looking back at wrestling history, and you know, you became a fan at the end of the 50s, but I know you're knowledgeable about wrestling history because, as you've talked about previously on the show, you almost instantly were interested in the history of the business. So you know about Londis. You know about all the big drawing cards in history. Where does Bruno rank to you amongst the biggest wrestling stars in history? Honestly, now you have to realize, of course, this also goes back to like Londis you had just mentioned. And again, this goes back to an ethnic, thing where uh, Londis really capitalized on his ethnic background and the promoters pushed it. But I would say Bruno would probably be, if you were to take the first, the top five guys, I'd say Bruno would probably be, probably actually number one, to be honest with you, in modern terms. For a length of time, he was on top, where he wrestled, you know, all over the East Coast, of course. But then he also, he also worked in San Francisco, which had a big Italian population. Toronto had a big Italian population. You know, also he went to Australia for a tour there. And, you know, he went to Japan. He, so he, did, he, he hit all those markets. And, of course, knowing of the Italian base in these cities and territories, they, they, uh, they use that as a vehicle. Of course, he would just open his uh, mouth and, you know, chat all these words in, in Italian and boom. Of course, we've talked a lot about Bruno in Madison Square Garden. We've talked about Bruno in Boston. Bruno wasn't just a Northeast wrestler. Recently on the Jim Cornette Experience, we talked about Bruno in Indianapolis. Dave Drayson was on. We talked about Bruno in Detroit. We've had a few chances on the Super Podcast to talk about Bruno in different areas. Let's go to this recording from a few episodes back with Wayne St. Wayne, his memories of being in the crowd in St. Louis in 1973 when Bruno San Martino came into St. Louis. When Bruno San Martino, who they'd been reading about in the magazines, came in. A lot of things have been said about these shows over many years, including people saying that Bruno didn't get over to the St. Louis fans. Well, let's hear what Wayne St. Wayne has to say. In 73, Bruno San Martino made several appearances, and of course he had been yeah. the, the biggest star in the Northeast and for the WWF. 
Uh, a lot of people have said that was kind of like a culture shock, seeing him in St. Louis and that it, it didn't really get over to the point where a lot of people thought he would have. What do you remember about Bruno in St. Louis? Well, I remember the, the first show that he was here was the main event against Ivan Koloff. And I believe it was in April of 73. And I remember it was a lot of people in the audience not really buying it because they did that style where uh, they never really, like, clamped into any real hold necessarily. It was sort of like reversals and throws and off the rope and sunset flip, you know, monkey flip or whatever, constant motion kind of thing. And the people weren't really buying it because they were more used to the, the grueling kind of realistic match, O'Connor and Valentine kind of stuff for Gene Kaniski, where they would, would work a body part and work a hold, you know, and gradually build up the heat. So, uh, but I remember uh, by... In a couple months' time, uh, in June, I think it was June 15th, maybe, the first time Harley Race won the title. And uh, during that first reign as the world champion, he only only had the one title defense, and that was against Bruno in St. Louis, I mean. He had the title defense. Uh, he was only appeared here once as world champion during his first time as world champion. That was against Bruno Sammartino. And I believe it was June fifteenth, I think, of seventy three. That was a, that, that's yeah, pretty miraculous. You remember the date exactly? Well, I, I remember a couple of years ago looking up a bunch of uh, results just for fun and reminiscing, and especially the older the years before I started going and wishing I could. You know, a lot of people if they asked if they had a chance to go back in time, where would they go and what would they see, and they might have in mind historical events like, uh, I don't know, the civil rights uh, crowd in Washington, D.C. in 1963 or something, or the moon, you know, watching the moon landing, or mine would be, if I could go back in time, I would go to Friday Night Wrestling at Keele Auditorium and see some of those matches. I missed all those years that, you know, before I started following wrestling. But, uh I forgot what I was talking about. Well, we were, that always happens. We were talking about Bruno, and, you know, you, you bring up uh, how it, oh, was, yeah. it was a big style difference. I mean, to case in point, on that April show you mentioned, yeah. he's in the main event against Koloff, and look at what's underneath it. It's Billy Robinson and Jack Briscoe versus the Miller Brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, uh, one thing I do remember, though, by the time uh, they had the title match with Harley against Bruno, uh Maybe Harley was helping him, or maybe, you know, Bruno was probably, I'm sure, talented enough to pick up that, you know, the more solid old wrestling style. Because they had a, I remember they had an hour long uh, Broadway, and man, that was one of the greatest matches ever. And they took their time, uh, you know, work to hold that just kind of gradually built the heat up. And I, I don't really remember all the spots. I just sort of remember being really impressed. And then I think that would be on that list of best matches that's you know some of the best matches i've ever seen that would be harley race and bruno sammartino wow so bruno did adapt to the that style though pretty well but yeah that at first i guess he didn't really get over all that big from what i remember Italian wrestlers were always big draws in Jim Barnett's Australian wrestling promotion, World Championship Wrestling. Of course, Dominic DiNucci was a major star there. Mario Milano, a major star there. And Bruno San Martino was a major attraction in Australia. Here's wrestling historian Ed Locke talking a little bit about Bruno in Australia. 
you talk about this idea that they were told you need a strong Italian baby face. And mm. of course, it was, I believe, early 66 when the opposition, when George Gardner actually announced that he had dates on Bruno San Martino. At that time, the biggest yep. star at Madison Square Garden, the biggest star in the Northeast, of course, the Italian Superman, as everyone knows. But of it course. never happened. And later that year, of course, he would show up, but for the Barnett office. For two tours. Yeah, definitely. Um, being fans, uh, obviously, we weren't really uh, privy to any of uh, of the, the wheelings and dealings. But I would assume that the Barnett probably uh, outbid Gardner, um, especially having lost to Rian for him. Rian only wrestled a few matches for Gardner that I can find any... Uh, any details of, but yeah, he. Uh, I, I think um, Barnett was probably uh, pretty determined that uh, that he wouldn't be outbid on Bruno on San Martino, and he offered him what was record money for Australia in those days. And uh, yeah, as we say, uh, Bruno did two tours for Barnett, and uh, was a great success also. One of the central themes about Bruno's career is he really didn't spend too much time away from his home territory when he was active. And this goes for Japan. Bruno wasn't like the typical wrestler who went over to Japan. He never worked a full tour, but he still had very important matches, matches that still to this day resonate with people. His matches with Giant Baba, he was there for the first All Japan Tour. He was someone they brought back whenever they brought back legends. And actually, I just saw a photo from this past weekend. After the death of Mrs. Baba, the wife of Giant Baba, they had an in-ring ceremony honoring the death of Mrs. Baba, as well as Bruno San Martino, holding up pictures of both of them. So here in 2018, All Japan Pro Wrestling, different ownership, a completely different company than what it used to be still honoring the memory of Bruno Sammartino. I'm very happy to say I had an opportunity to speak to wrestling historian Fumi Saito about Bruno Sammartino in Japan, as well as Bruno's relationship with Giant Baba. Let's go to this right now. I am very happy to welcome to the Super Podcast someone who's been mentioned on the air several times in the past. He's a journalist. He's a writer. He's a historian. And that, of course, is Fumi Saito. Fumi, welcome to the program. How are you? Hi, from Tokyo. Well, <laughs> thank you. You know, it took us a little <laughs> while to arrange a time that worked for both of us. But here you are, you're in Tokyo, and we're talking Bruno San Martino today. And I know mm -hmm. that Bruno had a very special relationship with Baba, but let's talk about Bruno's relationship with Japan. When did Bruno first start going over? And also, when did the Japanese fans first start hearing about Bruno San Martino? Oh, in early 60s. And also, the, those days, news traveled last floor. And also, the, the, the actual distance hasn't changed, obviously. But the New York was pretty far away in the 60s, you know? A lot of wrestlers, including Giant Baba, Anthony Inoki, Jumbo, you know, Fujinami, Ricky George, all those people traveled to States and had their own tours. But a lot of times, you know, even back in Ricky Dozen's days, People, Japanese wrestlers go to Hawaii, California, you know, San Francisco, LA, all those places. But New York was pretty far away then. And Bruno Sammartino was the champion of Madison Square Garden, something you read about. Not actually expect to do that much of a, you know, back and forth tour like Stan Hansen and Bruce Brody days. Right. 
And uh, yeah, Bruno Sammartino was always some somebody you read about, that uh, real legend and the uh, real world heavyweight champion from America. Yeah, and, you know, you said something interesting there. When you think about really the first generation of Japanese pro wrestling, you think of Ricky Dozen yeah. battling the Sharp Brothers. You think of Ricky Dozen and the Destroyer, Ricky Dozen and Fred Blassie. It really is based sure. on the West Coast. And meanwhile... Pretty much California. That's it. And Hawaii. And Hawaii. Yeah. But, you know, if you think about the end of the 70s, you think about the 80s, and all of a sudden Madison mm-hmm. Square Garden is such a big name in Japanese wrestling. It means so much. Yeah. When did that start? When did Madison Square Garden really... During late 60s and 70s, we had a TV show called Pro Wrestling Hour, American film from you know New York. It was aired as a wrestling program in Japan, Channel 12. All those, you know, real old black and white film from Antonino Rocker days. Oh, we were wow. watching it as a kid. Yeah. No Japanese wrestlers. They put Japanese commentary on black and white film from Buffalo, New York. And so that was a first experience for us. And also, basically, Japanese wrestling fans have always been pretty much reading oriented. You know, like a Tokyo Sports, Pro Wrestling Magazine, Baseball Magazine, the yeah. Gong Magazine, and Gong. all those things. That we've been reading wrestling as much as we're reading and watching it. And Bruno Sammartino was somebody we read about, we read about always. Champion of Madison Square Garden. And we didn't have much of videos in, you know, like, you know, during the 70s. Not, probably not until early 80s. Not until you have everybody has in the VCR at your house, and uh, until then, during the seventies, yeah, New York seemed pretty far away. Some something you always read about, or you know, yeah, kind of seemed far away. But Bruno Sammartino was the champion from that era, and also we, we had comic book Giant Typhoon. It's a comic book about Giant Baba's wrestling days in America. And Bruno Sammartino was one of the main characters in that comic book. Of course, Baba main evented against Bruno in, I want to say... 1964. I was about yeah. to say early 64, right before Bill Watts arrived mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. And Right, then, right. So, I mean, they had that relationship. They had that history. And is that why mm-hmm. Bruno was featured in the Baba comic? Yeah, and then also they, that the whole, whole comic book was about Jan Baba's trip to America and how how he spent his whole year there. You know, Killer Kowalski was in there. Um, people like Hardboard Haggerty, the, um, Matt, uh, Vince McMahon Sr., and all the landscape, all those, you know, New York City things. And it was something we read about as a kid. And Bruno Sammartino was one of the main characters and had a friendship with Bob. Some of the story, yes, it's a comic book, so it's some of, some of them are fiction, some of them are fantasy, but it's always based on the reality. And, uh, yeah, we read Bruno Sammartino in our comic book before we actually seen him. In terms of the magazines, you know, you say how yeah. Japanese wrestling fans have always been reading-centric, and that's always been apparent. Mm-hmm. And if you look at those old issues of Gong from the... 70s they're amazing not just for the photography but just if without even knowing japanese the amount of information packed into those (laughs) what was the 60s like before gong really took off in the 70s what was the 1960s like in terms of uh media coverage for japanese wrestling um he was very limited you know not small territory but what 
took place in Madison Square Garden, what took place in, let's say, Olympic Auditorium from LA, and that's about it. That's about it. AWA in Minnesota, Minnesota Vern Gagne, didn't even start coming until 1970s. So, um, yeah, all, all just big cities. The things are quite different because people like Buddy Rogers or, or even people like Gorgeous George, they did not have Japan tour. Right. You know? Yeah, it was really fast. Yeah, Luthes yeah. Yeah. was the first real world heavyweight champion who came to Japan, 1957. Yeah, I actually they didn't even mention the name NWA then. The Luthes came in as the world heavyweight champion. We didn't learn about it, you know? In terms of the magazines, I mean, you mentioned that they covered LA and WWF or WWF, and that was really it, but. What mm-hmm. was there? I mean, in the 1960s, in the 1970s, you know, I know Gong Magazine and the 80s, eventually everything goes weekly and that changes the whole landscape yeah. of Japanese magazines. But what was the Japanese magazine scene like in the 60s for wrestling? Oh, it come out once a month. So uh, I was reading it religiously every month. Yeah. Back to back, page to page. I read every page of it. You know, serious wrestling fan would do. Yeah. And then also we always had uh, once or twice w- weekly, you know, wrestling show on television, network television, and traditionally Japanese wrestling company bring in like top-notch American wrestlers each tour. You know, every tour, like we always had like eight to nine tours, eight to nine, three to five-week tour. Headliner would be what uh, Freddie Blassie, the Dick Byer, the Gene Koniski, the you name all those, you know, 60s superstars. They come in and tour three to five weeks. And they'll be on television those months. And so we, just by being in Japan, we were able to witness all the top stuff from all over, all kinds of different territories. Pat O'Connor, everybody. When did the American magazines first show up there? Like, when did you first see an American wrestling magazine? Ooh, it was never that big. Well, for one thing, it's written in English, you know, and uh, that was part of the reason I really wanted to learn the language and wanted to, you know, be able to read and understand. And the Wrestling Review was the first American wrestling magazine I read as a kid, Wrestling Review. And I believe that the front page was Bruno then. Every wrestling magazine that came out of New York, Bruno San Martino was on the cover. Pretty of much, much, right, yeah. right, that too, yeah. Well, talk about when Bruno in Japan when Bruno first starts coming over to Japan. Yeah, nineteen sixty-seven as WWF World Heavyweight Champion. What was interesting was though, Bruno did not defend WWF title in Japan. He came in wearing the belt, championship belt, and everything, but he challenged Giant Baba's international heavyweight title as a challenger. Same, same thing happened the same year, 1967. Gene Koniski came in with NWA belt. He did not defend that belt. He challenged Giant Baba in the National Heavyweight title instead. And back then, champion meant, or title match meant, always 60-minute, two out of three, four match. And in, in this case, Baba against Bruno, twice, 1967 and 1968, Baba against Gene Koniski, 1967 and 1968 twice each, always had 60-minute Broadway, two out of three, four match, one and one in go time limit. 
It looked. It seems like a formula then. How was Bruno built up before the Baba match, and was it a big deal on that tour? When a oh, real big deal, yeah, because they held the title match at the baseball stadium in Osaka. Yeah, so not like a Sumo Palace or the you know arena that holds ten to fifteen thousand people. They used baby baseball stadium instead, expecting thirty to forty thousand people. Real world champion from New York coming in. And also backstory was these two are friends. How many people did show up in the baseball stadium? Oh, the 35,000. Yeah, something like that, yeah. And also the, the backstory in, is very important in Japan. And also it's not like babyface heel situation. It's two babyface respected each other and had a dream title match. They tried to do that in New York with Bruno against Pedro in 72, but... Right, right, the Shea Stadium. Yeah, yeah. very different, though, right. but there was that backstory. People knew that Baba and Bruno did have some sort of relationship, and that relationship continued. You mentioned he was there in 67. You mentioned he was there in 68. And after that, it was a 70, 73 was next door, uh, right when Jan Baba opened All Japan Pro Wrestling. Yeah, 1967 match, yeah. 67 match and 68 match was held under old JWA that the Ricky Dozen's Nippon Pro Wrestling Company. And Baba was still working for that, you know, old company. Then he uh, went independent from the old company. Then that old company went, went under shortly after. But the Baba officially opened All Japan Pro Wrestling in 1973. And Bruno San Martino was a headliner for the opening series. And how much credibility did that give All Japan right off the bat? Oh, right off the bat, oh, that is the company. And that uh, Channel 4, NTV, Nippon TV, switched from GWA to All Japan Pro Wrestling at the time. And so it looked to me, though, I was like a kid, but Jan Baba's All Japan became that company then. And Bruno was the first, you know, headliner for the first tour they had. In fact, Bruno San Martino, Freddie Bassi, Terry Funk, uh, Dominic Denucci, quite a few others, but uh, Bruno was the main guy there. And boy, if you're going to really try to establish your promotion as the premier promotion in a country, having Fred Blassie mm-hmm. there, who was a legendary opponent of Ricky Dozen, having Bruno sure. on the tour, having a funk on the tour, I mean, that's, that's how and you do it. And also Dory Funk Sr. together. Dory Funk Sr. and Terry Funk. And Dory Jr. would come in the following tour. Yeah. And the Dick Buyer coming in there. Oh, yeah. Saturday night, 8 o'clock, Channel 4. <laughs> Great primetime program. Network channel, though. Yeah. I mean, Dick Buyer yeah, became a so. national celebrity based off that. Yeah. And also, yeah, t- tonight, tonight, we have to talk about Bruno. But uh, um, if you give me 30 seconds, Dick Buyer Destroyer was a huge star. And he was the, only, uh, the first one also had a uh, run as... Japanese side, you know, there, there was a single match destroyer against Jan Baba and destroyer said, if I lose this title match, I will join all Japan as Japanese group. So he ended up living here some seven years after that. He moved his whole family over and you know, all his kids went to school in Japan. And, uh, yeah, it was like a very, very in- good drama, you know, and I believed it. Like you said, it's all about backstory. <laughs> that's really yeah, that's yeah. All, all right all right yeah, that that yeah but bruno was the main guy on baba's old japan's very first tour 
Why did Bruno hate Anoki so much? And maybe hate's a strong word, but Bruno certainly didn't like Anoki, and he wanted oh, to go with Bob. Not liking or disliking, but see, when Bruno came and did tours with old JWA company, there were tag team situations where one team had Inoki and the other side had Bruno. So Bruno and Inoki actually worked in the ring, though. You know, they had. And there's not much video footage now, but uh, yes, there were more than one occasion Inoki and Bruno were in the same ring at the same time. And uh, clearly, when Baba was number one guy for JWA company, Inoki was still number two, clearly, until he opened New Japan Pro Wrestling. Right. And of course, yeah. he opens New Japan, and a few years later, he has 73. this... He has this 73, deal. actually, same year. Same, same year. year, yeah. JWA employees and All Japan and New Japan both open up. And then a few years later, Inoki reaches that deal with Vince McMahon Sr. for him to book American talent. Right. 74, yeah. He gets the cream of the crop yeah. in New York, except he does not get Bruno. Right, right. Yeah, there's going to be always, there's always two sides in this story. In, I'm not sure if Inoki really wanted to use Bruno either, though, because it's so established that he's like a giant Baba's friend and rival and already appeared in Old Japan Ring. And uh, if Bruno did work for New Japan with Inoki, Inoki would want to beat him, right? Don't you think? Yeah, Inoki wanted to beat everybody. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, yeah that too. But that, that could happen, no? you know? But the, the, the interesting thing is, though, Vince McMahon Sr. and New Japan, Inoki's New Japan Pro Wrestling, actually cut a deal, business affiliates, right? All the, all the New York superstars started coming in. But Bruno apparently said, no, I ain't going. And it worked. If we, any guy under contract, you would follow the rule, right? So Bruno actually could pull this thing and he could flex his muscle. No, I'm not going to opposition, like opposition. I'm with Jan Baba. And apparently Vince said okay about it, right? Vince Sr. I don't think I he had say. I don't think he had a choice. <laughs> I don't think he had right, any choice. Right, right, right. Bruno but interesting thing was though, 1976, 1976, June 26th to be exact, Antonio Inoki against Muhammad Ali. Yeah, of course. And they did the Shea Stadium simulcast with Bruno. Right. The Stan main Hansen. pro yeah. Main promoter was this, you know, WWF in, in America. It was more like Vince McMahon Jr., our Vince McMahon now. He was in charge, but uh, Vince McMahon family did, was not so confident that this event could make money or draw people. And Vince McMahon Sr. went ahead and said, Bruno, please work this night as a main event. So apparently people did come over to Shea, you know, Shea Stadium to watch Stan against Bruno instead of Muhammad Ali against Inoki. So it was technically they worked the same show. Yeah, and Bruno was in the hospital. Bruno was in the hospital with a broken neck right, from Stan Hansen. Only two months later. Yeah, it's been only two months after that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, before that. So it was interesting that, uh, so technically Inoki and Inoki, Muhammad Ali, Bruno Sammartino, Stan Hansen, Andrew the Giant and Chuck Weapon all work the same show. Technically. <laughs> Technically, yes. Yeah. Technically, yeah, right. I think Jack Briscoe wrestled Dory Funk Jr. on that same show in Atlanta that night. In Atlanta, right. <laughs> yeah. Or Miami, Terry Funk against Rocky Johnson or Vern Gagne, Bachwinkle from Chicago, all over the world in the place. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. 
but for 40, 40 years later, just had nothing, you know, that the people watch after MMA knowledge. If you watch Muhammad Ali Noki fight now on the same footage, I think the match looks different now. Actually, the match is really exciting. Trust my word. People can appreciate someone laying on their back much more now than they did then because they've seen jujitsu. They've seen that you know, that's actually a way to right. fight. Yeah. This is what you should do. Yeah. And so afraid to touch each other too, but yeah. But going back to Bruno, what yes, about, sir. What yes, about sir. Bruno's other All Japan tours? I mean, did he do anything memorable? Okay, after that, um, he had quite a few tours. Altogether, he had 10, 12 tours. But after this uh, All Japan thing, there was like a 76, Baba's PWF, Pacific Wrestling Federation title, against Bruno's WWF, WWF title, double title match in Japan. That happened, Baba against Bruno again, more matured. 975, 76, double title match. Bruno's WWF title against Baba's Pacific Wrestling Federation PWF title, double title match. Of course, double count-off. Both kept the title in each, in each title, but that happened. And also, 1981, 10th, 1982, 10th annual, 10th uh, anniversary show for All Japan, Baba and Bruno San Martino made a tag team together for the first time. And the last time, I guess. Baba Bruno against Taiga Jit Singh and Umanosuke Ueda. So ba- uh, the, the Baba and Bruno's tag team happened. And that, of course, was 81, 81, because that's when Bruno wrapped it yeah. up for his first retirement. Right. So then 81, then, yeah, the, okay, October of 81, then, right? Yeah. 10th anniversary show for, for Jan Baba's Old Japan Company. And that was the last tour he worked as an active wrestler, but he did come back for a few more tours for retro, you know, the, the old Japan during the 90s. Jan Baba invited a lot of legends over, people like Bruno San Martino, Killer Kowalski, Don Leo Jonathan, King Curtis, Fritz von Erich. Bayer, of course. Yeah. Fritz von Erich, yeah. So then they, they had an interview talk segment in the ring. And also, they had the meet and greet with your legend. It was just a great thing to have. So Bruno was the first guest on that uh, thing, too. And after that, very last tour Bruno had was after Baba died. The year after Baba died, uh, Baba died in January of 1999. One year later, they had Baba's retirement card. They did not say it's a memorial card. They wanted to announce it as a Baba is, is retiring in this show. And they placed Baba's big ring boots in the middle of the ring. The people who came was Bruno San Martino, Gene Kaniski, and Dick Bayer from America. The friendship with those le- real legends are very important in Baba's legacy. It's something Inoki didn't really share. Okay, you may have to understand this Japanese wrestling. All Japan, Baba's all Japan. A lot of American, all the American superstars come in, right? Babyface work like babyface. Heel work like heel. Just like what you do in America. Right. You understand? Yeah. Whereas Inoki's New Japan Pro Wrestling, anybody or any superstars, like a big baby face like Dusty Rose or Pedro Morales or even Jack Fresco, they all work like a heel when you when they come here. Or under the giant big heel. Right. Against big baby face Antonio Inoki. 
you know, Kibito. Even those people I read about in this wrestling magazine from America or other, you know, sources that Dusty Rose, American Dream, people like Pedro Morales or Jack Briscoe, um, just these people are big baby faces in America. I, as a kid, I did not understand why these people would run and make running and start beating up people and chasing audience and do use illegal tactics or whatever that they work like a heel because it's always going to be Antonio Inoki, you know, big Japanese baby face against American as a heel. So a little different method they use. Yeah, meanwhile, you look at all Japan, and you have a guy like a destroyer who gets over so big and becomes oh, really part of the national fabric. Baby face. Terry Funk, I mean, has there ever Story been Funk, bigger? Yeah, the Funks. Oh, have there ever been bigger huge. American baby faces than the Funks? Huge, yeah, huge. And same thing oh, with Bruno. Boy. Yeah, Bruno, yeah, because it doesn't have to be baby faces, but for somebody you respect, this is a big deal, you know, real legend. And the living legend, well, now, you know, people tend to abuse the term legend, but uh, Bruno Sammartino's nickname, living legend, he was the first one to use that, you know, nickname. And uh, yes, this guy is the living legend. Yeah. And also one more thing. Did America, did they use powerhouse for Bruno's nickname? I mean, it's been said about, I don't know about as a nickname, but it's certainly one of the right, things. Right, okay, term, yeah, yeah like a, a term you would hear, yeah. Yeah, we translated that as a human power plant. <laughs> you know the power plant? Yeah, yeah. human yeah. power plant. So it's stuck. Ningen Hatsudensho is like a nickname everybody knows in, in Japan. That's Bruno San Martino, human power plant. There you go. Wow, I never heard that and before. Just... Yeah, mystic portion. Just <laughs> I, I don't think he had enough tour that the people understand his work or the maneuvers that, you know, see, when you watch Stan Hansen or Bruiser Brody or Funks or even Mill Maskers, Abdul the Butcher, all these guys worked so many tours here. People know each and every move they make here, not just spinning into a hold or anything, but the, everything they do in the ring. People know for sure. But Bruno only had important single match and never had five-week tour or anything. Even though the tour was five-week long, Bruno would come in last five days and have three matches. That's about it. So he was treated, always treated differently. He only worked very important big shows. Maybe the schedule was tight, I guess, but uh, he never worked the full tour or full schedule. he come in and do the important big show and he'd be gone the following week how many but that made him even bigger yeah, yeah i was gonna say how many other guys did that did, was that a common thing with nwa champions yeah that too but yeah some the the, the real short state treatment thing uh von Eric, uh fritz von Eric and the chic you know and the detroit's original chic he always came in short fritz von Eric, the chic Bruno San Martino and Gene Koniski, that's about it. Dory Funk Jr. always worked the whole tour. Yeah. Even Harley Race, while he was, you know, NWA champion, he would still come in and do three week tour. Yeah, yeah, a little different. Bruno was treated always treated differently. And also Baba's generation, you know, obviously generation older than Harley Race and Funks. 
or Abby. One of the things I talked to Fumi Saito about there, John, was Bruno in the wrestling magazines. And of course, in America, if you went to the newsstand, more than likely Bruno San Martino was on the cover of at least one, if not several, of the magazines on the newsstand. They came out of the Northeast, but it wasn't just that simple. Bruno actually did boost the sales when he was on the cover of the magazines. What do you remember about seeing magazines in the 70s, John? I mean, I remember, first of all, well, one thing I remember is all the blood on the covers of the magazine, something you would, you, we haven't seen for a long, long time. But secondly, you know, Bruno by far was on the cover of the most magazines, especially the after magazines. I mean, one reason was because they, you know, after's crew went to Madison Square Garden every month and they took pictures. But like you said, number two, most important, if Bruno was on that, the cover of that magazine, sales increased. John Arezzi's been on the show before, of course. John, amongst many other things he's done around wrestling, was a photographer for the magazines. So I wanted to talk to John a little bit about Bruno, about what it was like to shoot ringside. When Bruno's in Madison Square Garden main eventing and the fans are going nuts, I wanted to talk to him what it was like to be an Italian kid in New York, growing up a Bruno San Martino fan. And of course, John later on in the 90s was involved in all the controversy that was around the World Wrestling Federation at that time. The famous Donahue show. Bruno San Martino was there. John Arezzi was there with him. Bruno was a frequent guest on John's show, as well as appearing at John's various conventions. So let's now go to this conversation with friend of the show, John Arezzi. I am very happy to welcome back to the Super Podcast a longtime friend of the show, John Arezzi. And of course, John knew Bruno, but at the beginning, when you go really way back, John's important to have here because you can't tell the story of Bruno San Martino without having an Italian kid from Brooklyn on the show to talk about Bruno San Martino. So, John, welcome back to the program. Always a pleasure to be here with you, Brian. Uh, and it's been a sad week with losing Bruno, but also uh, a time for remembrance and, um, and, and certainly the publicity, the remembrance from Everybody in, in, in the industry, it's been really heartwarming to see how everyone has paid tribute to this remarkable legend. When did you first see Bruno? What are your first memories of him? Well, I, could, I remember the very first time I saw Bruno San Martino, and that was on Channel 5 in New York. Uh, it was wrestling. It was the very first time I saw wrestling. My older sister, five years older than me, called me into the living room because there was these guys little they were you know the little people i guess you call them in a in a mat in a, in a ring and chasing each other around the ring so it was like what the heck is this i didn't know what it was <laughs> so it was uh it was back in the day it was probably sky lolo or little bruce or one of those guys and so it was just kind of glued to the tv and then uh there was this wrestler dr jerry graham who was in a match that night and he was beating on bruno's uh cousin, I guess they called him back then, Antonio Pugliese, uh, Tony Parisi. And so we're watching this unfold in front of our eyes. And I'm probably six or seven years old. I would guess that could be the time period, six or seven years old. And then there's a big rumble in the crowd and a, a gentleman throws a suitcase into the ring and he's in a suit and tie. And it was Bruno coming in 
doing a run-in, I guess, from the airport. He had just gotten into town, so he ran in, picked up the, the suitcase, and he whacked Dr. Jerry Graham <laughs> on the head, and uh, Graham juiced, and it was kind of like this blood pouring out of this guy, and then he, you know, and then it, it, it breaks up, and he goes to the announcer's table, and that was Ray Morgan doing the play-by-play. And he was like, well, Dr. Jerry Graham, you, you know, it looks like you need a doctor. He goes, I'm my own doctor. And, I, and that was kind of it. That was my first time ever seeing this Bruno San Martino. And I was hooked on wrestling from that point forward. And then he was the champion and he was on TV every week doing an interview or promoting whoever he was going to fight. So that was kind of the, uh, the first time I saw Bruno San Martino. Uh, and then after, you know, getting to become a fan at such a young age, my Italian grandmother, who was born in Italy, um, I had no clue that she would know who Bruno San Martino was, and I just started watching. And I was staying by her house uh, one weekend, and she came into the house like all excited because she had went down to shop. My grandmother used to shop for her fruit and vegetables and uh, down on Orchard Street in New York City. And she came in, I just saw Bruno San Martino. I was, and I was like, what? And I was this little kid. And she was like, and I went up to him and I was like, Bruno San Martino. And he was like, Signore, Signore, please, shh. If you say who I am, people are going to mob me. And so she told me that story and I remember it. That was over 50 something years ago. So, I mean, that was my first experiences with, with Bruno. And I was a fan, you know, forever. And, and, uh, and, you know, there was even a time where I, I went to go to Madison Square Garden to see him wrestle Gorilla Monsoon, but I was under 14 and we'd gotten tickets and showed up and couldn't get in. So that was kind of heartbreaking. Um, so that was another early, early Bruno story. Uh, and then basically just kind of followed his career and uh, was uh, was shocked the day he lost the title to Ivan Koloff because there was a big feature story in Newsday, the Long Island newspaper, that Bruno had actually lost. And, and, and at that time, I was just turning 14 that month. Uh, and then I started going to the garden. But, you know, Bruno was already gone, but he was still the living legend. Um, get, getting a little bit further on uh, as I became – a little bit more integrated into wrestling, started the Freddie Blassie fan club, started then writing for some of the magazines, then met George Ann Macropolis, Michael Mansky, and we started all, we used to hang out at the bowling alley upstairs from Madison Square Garden, and uh, and, and then he came back and, and won the title from uh, Stasiak, and we all knew that day that he was going to win the title, it was a celebration before the show even took place, but Bruno was just that guy, he was that special guy, he was that person that You've seen as soon as he made that his way through the curtain, the crowd would erupt. And it was something like that to this day, I really still have not seen uh, as far as the uh, the love uh, and the ad adulation that everybody had for him uh, from the fans, you know, to the boys. It really is amazing when you go back and you look at all the crowds he drew in Madison Square Garden and all the sellouts he drew in Madison Square Garden during the years where children couldn't go to shows. True. No kids under 14. And that was a, that was a big deal. I mean, it was all adults and and it was just kind of an amazing, amazing time back back then. And, uh, you know, certainly, as you know, my story, I uh, had gotten back into the pro wrestling business uh, full time uh, in 1989, starting the pro wrestling spotlight. 
1440 WNYG on Long Island, little station. And as I was planning the show, I, um, uh, I of course, wanted to reach out to everybody and and see who we could partner with and call the Worldwide Wrestling Federation or the World Wrestling Federation at the time and spoke to uh, a kid named Steve Planamenta, uh, who was head of PR at the time. And, uh, and he immediately knew who I was because he was a fan of mine when I was a photographer. Uh, and I met Steve Planamenta through a kid I went to college with, and he lived in the same town as Steve. And, and then when he said he knew John Arizzi, Steve went crazy when Steve was a little kid. And now here I am talking him on the phone. I had no idea he was the head of public relations for WWF. So he was happy to hear from me, and uh, I said I was starting this uh, radio show, and I'd love to get cooperation and interview wrestlers and do promotions and he was like, boy, all of that sounds great. He goes, but I just want to tell you one thing. I mean, uh, there's another guy in New York, this guy, Rich Mancuso, who does this hour on WFAN, and he really trashes the business, and he exposes the business. And, and as long as you, you know, as long as you are kind to us, we're going to be able to work with you. And so for the very first Pro Wrestling Spotlight, um, April 9th, 1989, uh, the WWF provided Jimmy Hart for me. Uh, during that week, uh, I had been uh, talking to wrestling contacts like George Napolitano and Bill Apter, and I was trying to accumulate phone numbers because I wanted to bring Bruno San Martino on because he was my hero. So I got the number uh, from George, I believe, of Bruno, and I called him up and asked him to do an interview with me on my radio show and explain how much I loved him. And I think I even told him the story about my grandmother back in the day. And he certainly agreed to do an interview with me, but... Uh, he went after, right after the WWF, and that was right, you know, when he had that split up, and there was a lot of heat, and how, you know, how he hated the way the business had become, and and after I did that interview, I taped it for air. It wasn't live. Uh, I was like, boy, I have to. Uh, I don't know what to do with this. Should I play it? Should I not play it? I was like, it's compelling. And then I reached out to Steve Planamenta, and I was like, listen, I just did an interview with Bruno San Martino because I really had no clue how much heat there was between them. And uh, Steve was like, can I hear that interview? I was like, well, yeah, my show airs in about a week. I'll get it played for you on the phone here. And and, uh, and basically I did, and he was like, you're not going to air that, are you? I was like, well, I, I, I think I have to. He goes, well, if, if you air an interview like that, you know, we're – we're not going to be able to do anything with you. I was like, I just made a, a gut decision and said, well, I have to have the interview and I did. And, uh, uh, and that was the end of my cooperation with the world wrestling federation for, uh, you know, for a good length of time. You know, I only had one other interview and that was with Freddie Blassie. Uh, but that was the only time the WWF cooperated with me, but Bruno, I mean, he was very passionate, very, uh, uh, very to the point. Uh, he never, ever um, blew smoke. He always was speaking his mind. He always was saying uh, what he felt in his heart and what he felt about the business. And uh, I uh, grew to respect him even more uh, back then. And uh, it was just kind of a, it was great to get to know him. Afterwards, I immediately, uh, when I started doing my uh, wrestling fan conventions, he was at every single one of them. Uh, and he was the only wrestler that wouldn't allow me to charge for an autograph. He actually sat separate, separate from all the boys. Uh, so, uh, he could sit and mingle with the fans and sign anything 
for anyone with no cost. I think he was the last athlete period to do that because if you ever go to a baseball card show or anything else, you see that everyone's charging for an autograph. Everyone. He was the one guy. I mean, I know he held that until maybe the 2000s. He was the one guy yeah. who never charged. Right. Right. Yeah, I know probably towards the latter part of his life uh, that he uh, that he maybe allowed promoters to charge for an autograph. But uh, he was he was steadfast in that, and he was uh, he just wanted to he just wanted to have the fans get that experience of meeting him, and he treated everybody with such kindness and love and respect. Uh, and one thing about Bruno, as long as you showed him the respect that he earned, uh, he would respect you back. And with him. If he said he was going to be there, if he said he was going to do an interview, if he said he was going to be at a, a personal appearance, then he was. And I was able to even book him probably two or three times. I did some publicity and marketing for a, a large sports bar out on Long Island, and uh, I booked him for a few appearances there as well. But uh, I got to know him. Uh, you know, was he a best friend of mine? Uh, probably not, you know, uh, but, um, he knew that, uh, he knew that I had the respect for him and, and, uh, and he was kind of, a almost even somebody mentoring me in a little, uh, for a little while when, when, uh, when a lot of this stuff was going on back in the day. And, uh, I even appeared, uh, on Phil Donahue with him when they had that show. Well, you were uh, kind of in, I mean, at that period of time when it was really, the WWF having all these scandals, the sex scandals and the steroid scandals. Bruno was yeah. in the middle of it. You were in the middle of it because so much of it was happening on right. your show. And then right. Bruno had just done Larry King. And here he is now. It's Donahue. It's Dave Meltzer. It's you. It's Bruno. It's Billy Graham. Several other people accusing Vince and the WWF of things. And Vince right there in the middle of it. And... You know, the, mm -hmm. the, the one bad thing about that period of time is I think if you only knew Bruno from that period of time, you would think here's this angry, bitter guy. And yes, that's what he came across to the general public. That's what he, he came across as some type of bitter old wrestler. And that was unfortunate because he, he, he hated what what he saw that was going on at the time. And he was very vocal about it. And and uh, and even the Donnie, I never forget the Donnie experience. I mean, we when the Donnie brought Vince in, you know, because he had green rooms, and Vince came, <laughs> Donnie brought Vince in, you know, to the room where all the people who were going to be like, you know, talking against what's been going on, and and uh, Bruno and and Vince didn't even look at each other, you know, and and, uh, and then we were in the green room while the first segment was going on, and I never forget when uh, when he uh, Vince and Murray Hodgkins were going at it in that first segment, and you know, it was like Vince was saying some things, and that. You just you just feel the tension in that room, but uh, it was an interesting time. It really was. But um, but Bruno, unfortunately, uh, as some of us did. I mean, even me. I mean, I we didn't you didn't come off looking that good on a show like that. You know, it's hard for anybody to come off looking good in a situation like that. Yeah, very very uh, very ugly ugly time in the history of pro wrestling and uh and i was right in the middle of it and it was um it was a bad time back then well let's go back to a different time you know you brought up georgie m Acropolis. good time georgie yeah. orsi she's had various last names she was married several times <laughs> but uh um, right you know the one <laughs> the one steady throughout the bruno story is georgie ann because she wasn't just a fan club president she really was his confidant she knew everything yes. that was happening yes. i mean bill watts brought up the fact that 
a fan club president. That was Georgianne was the one who tipped off everyone to what Buddy Rogers was planning to do because she was also Buddy Rogers' fan club president. She's very yes. involved in the Bruno story. So what was it like for you in the mid-70s to hang out with Georgianne knowing that she was really, I mean, she was the Bruno connection. Right. And she was everybody's mom. I mean, she really, she really kind of looked out for all of us that were in her little circle. And I was uh, very happy to be one of those people. But yeah, she just adored Bruno, just worshiped the ground he walked on and, and even hanging out with her and, and having, uh, you know, the time with her. And then even sometimes even hanging out with Bruno because there was a bar uh, after the garden shows. And everyone stayed at the Edison Hotel, I think it was on 45th between 7th and Broadway. And there was a little bar called the Savoy across the street from the Edison where everyone hung out. And uh, Bruno occasionally would go out and hang out with, with, with uh, us. And he'd sit at the table and George Ann was there. And, and it was kind of a really, really cool time that you look at it today. Cause when you, you know, you're in a place and there's Bruno San Martino and there's Andre the giant at the bar and, and Lou Albano and, and, and some of the others, it was just kind of a, it was a magical time in a way. It really was when you, you know, as you get older, you reminisce and you think about these things, but just being around Bruno was the presence. It was kind of like, you didn't want to approach him. You didn't want to, you know, get in his way. You wanted to be polite and respectful and not bother him. And the fact that you were just in the same room, breathing the same air as, as Bruno San Martino, it was something very, very special to be a part of. And I'm so happy that I was able to be a part of that back in the 70s and then later on uh, at the end of the 80s and into the 90s with this man. Were you ever a member of his fan club, either Georgianne's or Mike Madunio's version of the fan club? Um, uh, I believe I was with uh, Madunio, Michael Madunio uh, when he had the fan club, and that was after Georgianne. That was after Georgianne. Uh, but Mike and Georgianne were best friends anyway. Right. <laughs> it was a whole crew. It was like a clique. It was a whole little <laughs> clique. It really was. And it was just kind of six or eight of us and hanging out, you know, at the garden, at the bar upstairs by the bowling alley. And then afterwards going over to the Savoy. And it was, uh, it was a pretty neat time. And even during the convention days when – uh, uh, Georgianne was always like she was kind of an intermediary too like if Bruno was unhappy about something he would tell Georgianne and then Georgianne would relay the message like even the Buddy Rogers uh, the, 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 the Buddy Rod when I booked Buddy for the convention in 1991 yeah. the Weekend of Champions uh, and it was Georgianne who kind of orchestrated that, that photograph with Bruno and Buddy together and uh, you know that picture is kind of historic now you say orchestrated. There was no one else who can get them in the same room within two feet of each other. She was the only she one. She probably begged them. She <laughs> let us beg both of them. Please. Yeah. Please, guys. You know. Uh, it's the most it tense was, uh, handshake photo you've ever seen. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, it was. It was. And you know what? The, and the whole sad part about it is I wasn't in the room when that picture got taken. Oh, I don't know who man. took it. But but uh, I would have just loved to just be there just to see them together them together and they kind of avoided each other the whole um, those, whole, those two days <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. They avoided each yeah, other yeah for, for decades forever yeah. yeah exactly well let me ask you this because you also have a very unique perspective because you got to see bruno from ringside when you were shooting photos what was that mm. like what's it like being at ringside at madison square garden when bruno oh. jogs to the ring it's um, it's electric first and foremost it's electric you you, you get goosebumps and i get goosebumps right now just thinking about it 
because whether it was Waldo Von Erich or Killer Kowalski or Nikolai Volkov or Billy Graham or who every Ken Patera, every time Bruno jogged down to that ring with Skolin, it was just magical. But you also had to be very aware of your surroundings because there were times where, you know, they tumble out of the ring. And a lot of times they tumble out on the photographers because there were commissioners at ringside on the other on the other sides of the ring uh, and then the entrance. So I got I think I got nailed by Bruno once. I got uh, I got I, I, I you know, he. He fell on me at one time, you know, but, uh, but yeah, you had to have your, you had what's about you and just be aware of your surroundings. But inside the ring, you just, it was just electric. It was almost magical. You know, you're almost like, you you just almost like you're not even there. You just, you're, you're there, but you're not, you know, and, and uh, it's really kind of ironic because just recently I started taking a look at all those photographs uh, and especially this week after this happened and found out that he passed. Uh, just to see the pictures that I shot of in the dressing room of him and Andre together and and just all the wow. photographs. I, I, I shot photos of Bruno at ringside, uh, not just at the Garden, but um, but in Boston where I went to college, and, I, and I'd shoot ringside there. And those were some, some matches that were even better than Madison Square Garden. I'll never forget the time that uh, it was the first time Bruno had gotten pinned it was a tag team match it was graham had just come into the territory and really heated it up and it was uh graham and spiro sarion against bruno and gorilla monsoon or bruno and dominic Danucci, and uh graham got the one two three on him uh there you know and that was a uh, that was a pictures that i sold to aptor or napolitano or ring magazine or something but yeah. i i shoot bruno all, like everywhere you know and and he was um it was just amazing it was an amazing time and and uh his presence was uh, unlike any any other performer uh that I'd ever seen uh, with the type of love that he got in that ring that was so genuine by the fans. How would you compare him to other New York sports celebrities or sports stars of the sixties and seventies? I mean we had so many up here from Joe Namath, yeah. the Mickey Mantle to the entire sixty nine Mets. Um, Well, I mean, the the, the comparison is kind of sad in a way because a lot of people didn't want to admit they were wrestling fans, but everybody knew who Bruno Sammartino was. But so, I mean, I think the love that he's getting this week after he's passed where kind of everyone is kind of paying tribute to him. He had fans everywhere. Everybody knew who he was, but it wasn't cool to say you loved pro wrestling or loved Bruno Sammartino back in the day where Mickey Mantle and all the other great legends, Joe Namath, all the all the New York sports legends, uh, were, were it was always out in the open. But Bruno was kind of a almost kind of a secret, and I was kind of sad in a way. Before we wrap up, I have to ask you: you got to watch Bruno for so many years. Who's your favorite Bruno opponent? What's your favorite feud? Any favorite matches of yours? Uh, Koloff has to be near the top. Uh, just because they had such a long-lasting feud from the beginning of the of really the mid the 70s, right through you know when Bruno retired, and uh, it was just kind of they they loved working with each other. Kowalski was another one. I used to love watching Kowalski work with Bruno. Uh, and then you know one of, one of the biggest uh, uh, matches, at least for me personally, because I was a huge Spiro Sarion fan. Uh, when Spiros turned heel and then he got to face Bruno, that was kind of my personal dream match, and it didn't let me down. It was, uh, it, it was. There was a lot of heat. There was a lot of heat, and it was believable, and it was, uh, it was magic to see him against some of these guys.
As we begin to close out the show, John, there was one more person I wanted to speak to this week, and that was Kevin Sullivan, who's a very popular guest here on the show. But of course, before he was the taskmaster, before he was the games master, before his turn to the dark side, Kevin worked for the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. He grew up in Boston, and then he got to return to Boston, as well as New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and everywhere else. But I wanted to know what he remembered about working on those shows as an underneath babyface when Bruno San Martino was still the biggest wrestling star in the world, especially in the Northeast. Let's go to this conversation right now with Kevin Sullivan. As we continue our look at the life and career of Bruno San Martino, I am happy to welcome back to the Super Podcast one of our all-time most popular guests, and that, of course, is Boston's own Kevin Sullivan. Kevin, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Brian. It's great to be here, and it's a sad reason to be here, but I, I would really like to put my condolences out there to the San Martino family. I know it's been overused, the thing about one of a kind, but he was. You know, I said it uh, at the top here that, you know, before we started recording, I said to you that it's funny, you're from New England. It's one of the things that everyone points to about you. Yet, I don't think of you as a Northeast wrestler because you did so much in the South, so much in Florida. But you did indeed come out of the Northeast and you got to wrestle for the WWF for a good while. So what was it like to be around Bruno? Well, I've seen most of the great champions you know, I, I saw, I didn't work with, but I saw, I go back on television, I saw Buddy Rogers. Uh, I actually worked in a six-man tag match with Luthez, and uh, Jersey Joe Walcott was a special referee when I first broke into the business because I was Mike Graham's tag team partner. And uh, Jack Briscoe, uh, Dory Funk, I work with Terry, and not to put them down at all because they all were remarkable champions. But if I landed from another planet and didn't know anything about professional wrestling and I watched Bruno walk down the aisle, I would know that he was the world heavyweight champion. The way he carried himself you can go back when he's working in the ring, how he grabs his nose and pours the sweat off. Now, people always say he wasn't a great technical worker. But for up there, he was a very good technical worker. And when he needed to do those matches, he could do it. Baron Cicluna, we all know Baron, you know, reaching up. <laughs> for the foreign object and making yeah. it so obvious, you know what I mean? Yeah. And cutting corners. But he was a big star at one time. But when guys got there, they wanted a homestead. And they understood when they did that, you went from getting paid well to being an employee. You knew you were giving up something to stay there forever. But I saw him have a match with Bruno because he was in Bruno's clique. And he had an incredible match on television. It was over 15 minutes. And uh, Bruno could do that. But Bruno's thing was he could sell and he made the comeback with the kick and the punch and, you know, the big slam and the bear hug. And it, it wasn't as pretty as a Briscoe Funk match, 
but it certainly did the job. How many cellos did he have in the garden? And that's not including Boston, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Toronto, Montreal. He even went to, I remember when he went to uh, San Francisco and had been out there for many, many years. And he sold out the Cow Palace against Ray Stevens. And Ray Stevens was, he always told me that Ray Stevens was the greatest worker in the business. And they came for a finish where Bruno got counted out. And out there, if you got counted out, you would lose your belt. So there's a big controversy for a while that looked like Ray was the champion. But then it fell back. They worked it very well. That The WWW, three W's at the time, F didn't recognize it because they said it was sanctioned under WWWF rules, which I thought was a brilliant idea for the time. So, I mean, he was a given guy, too, in the ring. And I was lucky enough, my job was to prepare the guy for Bruno. Uh, I would get some wins around. I would beat the big stars that were leaving. And then I would put a Hanson over or a Brody over or a Koloff over or a Superstar Billy Graham. So I got to uh, really watch Bruno's work. And one thing about Bruno, we all fall into patterns when we work. I guess it's we're comfortable in it, or maybe we're, we uh, are afraid to take a chance. But Bruno's work with guys completely different. He work with superstar completely different than he would work against a guy like Killer Kowalski. So uh, I just thought he was, you know. In the last few years, as time goes by and we get further and further away from his era, I don't think maybe that some of the younger fans give him his due. And the other thing was, it was more ethnic, ethnicity meant a lot more back in the day. And all the Italians would come to the gardens. They would live and die with Bruno. I mean, on the if you went down to East Boston on the and everybody's living on the wall, there's a picture of the Pope and a picture of Bruno. <laughs> so I, 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 I think he maybe because of his strife with the WWE up until a few years ago, he didn't get his recognition out to the newer fans that haven't seen him. But uh, if you want to go back and Go back into time and go back into easier days. You'll get a, a real enjoyment watching Bruno. Yeah, and you know, there were so many ethnic stars back in the day. And just look at New York. Antonina Rocca, major, major ethnic star. After Bruno's first right. run, Pedro Morales, big, big ethnic star. But Bruno, I think, is clearly the biggest ethnic star of all time just because of how he crossed over into those communities in towns like New York and towns like Boston and towns like Philadelphia, et cetera. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, I'll go with this. Rocca had two ethnic groups that really followed the one, the Italians. The second one were the Hispanics because he was from Argentina and he spoke Spanish. But the Italians didn't get behind him like they did Bruno. They were behind him, but not like Bruno. You brought a great point there. 
that everybody lived and died. Every Italian lived and died with Bruno. And back in the day, I mean, Vince, who was uh, an Irish guy on the card, there was an Italian guy on the card, there'd be a Polak on the card. I mean, Putsky, you know, Native American. They even used Carlos Rocha. Uh, That's you know, right. Portuguese. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You know, I mean, so they used a lot of ethnicity, and uh, the, the old man didn't miss a beat with that. And you know, Blackjack Mulligan was the bad Irish guy, and then Pat Barrett was a good guy. So I mean, he, they covered it their bases pretty well. Let me ask you about being in the locker room with Bruno, because, you know, the interesting thing is here you have this guy who almost instantly, as soon as he begins wrestling, becomes a major attraction in New York. He gets blackballed, becomes a major attraction in Toronto, comes back, and then the Bruno legend is cemented. So, you know, he's on top for so many years, for so many years. And I guess one of the things you really have to give him credit for is his mentality, because Let's say Rocca. If it was Rocca with that kind of run, he wouldn't have been able to handle it. Bruno was the right guy to get that kind of run and to have that kind of push in terms of his capacity to manage it mentally. But what was he like in the locker room? I mean, you've been around a lot of world champions. When you're in the locker room with uh, Bruno, what's that like? Well, I mean, you're in awe of him because of what he's accomplished. But Brian, you just said something that I never even thought about. Nobody else could have done it. But him, he was the right guy at the right time with the right, and this is the word I'm going to use, and hopefully some young wrestlers will listen to this, the work ethic. Yeah. There was never a time he's out of shape. You couldn't blow him up. And believe me, his matches, you know, Kowalski was a machine. You know what I mean? He just kept on going and going and going. And I mean, some of the few times that they ever had four matches, we were talking earlier, Bill Watts got four matches in the garden with uh, Bruno, so did Kowalski. And, uh, you know, so he was able to work with everybody, but his worth ethic was spot on. And the other thing about Bruno, if you had a problem about your money, if you thought, we'll say back in the day, you got $300 and you thought the house was up and you were on his house and you thought you got 350 you could go to Bruno and say, hey, Bruno, last time I was on the show, I was on the third match and I got uh, 300 and this time I was in the match with Hanson or Brody or Superstar and I put them over because you're going to work with them next time and the house is bigger. I think I deserve money. And he would go and ask for more money for you. And not many guys on top would have ever done that. You know what I mean? He handled responsibility. I mean, th that's the thing. There aren't too many guys that were that responsible to be in that top role. Right. And he was, he was a very honorable guy. And he understood, too, that everybody worked hard and he did understand that he was raping a huge reward because up until that time, I'm not so sure everybody, all the champions were getting a fair count, but Bruno got his money because he had a flat fee plus a percentage. So it didn't, I mean, it actually could have put him in a, a bad light to go and ask for a, 
a Johnny Rods or a, a Pete Sanchez to get another hundred bucks for the night. You know what I mean? And he he was the guy that, like you said, he was the right guy to carry the torch, and he was the right guy in the dressing room. So I mean, uh, I mean, I questioned him on a couple of things. You know, one of the things I remember questioning him back in the day there, they used to have the world title match, uh, their title match, on early, right? Yeah, before intermission. Yeah, and uh, they put me and Sanchez on afterwards, and I went right to him and I said, "Hey, I've I've been busting my ass." Just like everybody else here, and this is a big show, and I'm going to go out in a babyface match against Sanchez after you just work with Ivan Koloff. I yeah. said, you know, this isn't going to fly. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, he, he, they didn't change the match, but at least he understood. And I think he appreciated that I, I was starting to learn the business. So, yeah, he, he was a... Uh, like you, you brought that up again, and I keep on going back to it. He was the right guy, the right time for a long time, but not to get big headed or whatever. But he was the work ethic. He was there every night. He had to be. Well, you were there in '76. I don't think you were on the Garden Show when he broke his neck, but I know you were on the Shea Stadium undercard. When two months yeah. later, they rushed him out of the hospital to fight Stan Hansen at Shea Stadium. What do you remember about that period of time when Bruno broke his neck? Well, I, I knew when Bruno, funny that you said that I uh, saw Hansen about two weeks ago. And we were at a show together. We went out that night and we were talking. And he said, boy, he felt horrible when he dropped Bruno on his head. But when he went to the ring, I handsome that night. I didn't think he was going to get to the ring because you could feel the vibes from the people. They were so hot. And then after he put Bruno over, it was almost that the vibes got worse. They started throwing things, you know, because the guy had lost. So it was very, very, very intense. And But the people believed in Bruno so much and they felt that this guy had created the biggest injustice, meaning Hanson, what he did to Bruno. So it was it was huge. I think sometimes Bob Backlund gets unfairly maligned because he followed Bruno. And, you know, Bruno was still being used in kind of the main event spot on a lot of those early Bob Backlund title defenses. But it raises a problem. How do you follow someone like that? I mean, you've been a booker. When you have a guy who's that magnitude of a star for so many years, for an entire generation. How do you build after that? I think, and I love Bob Backlund. I've worked with him a bunch. I love him. He's a great guy. But I think at the time, they should have given superstar Billy Graham a, a run and turned him babyface against Koloff and pushed Bob's title reign back maybe two years and then give Bob the rub where someone could beat Backlund like they do the up there. They used to do it quite a bit, the interim champions, you know what I mean? The Koloffs and the Stasiaks, right. because they just made it harder on Bob because Superstar Billy Graham was over so big. 
so big that I think, you know, it made it harder on Bob to drop. And, you know, you said that Bruno was on the card. It wasn't just Bruno being on the card. Dusty and Superstar will be in a Texas death match or a strap match or return match. They had Pedro Warkin still. They had Jimmy Snooker in Morocco, hot as, hot as firecracker. They brought Buddy Rogers back to be a manager. They built everything around Bob so he couldn't fail. And I'm not saying that he would would have failed. I'm just saying that's a tough act to follow. But they had superstar Billy Graham, which, who was 180 degrees away from Bruno. Now you bring in a guy that's a similar technician, much smaller than Bruno, the first non-ethnic champion or guy on top up there. You know, he's from the Midwest, a good-looking young boy, but that's the word it was. It was a young boy. It wasn't a sizzly veterans that they had up there. And I think if they had given Superstar the run with Koloff, and then had some heel beat him and then Bob come up and beat him because, you know, they had Bob on TV for 14 months before he ever appeared on a, on, on a live event. Did you know that? Yeah, he only did TVs and he was still working in Florida, I think. Yeah, and I think he, he went up to Minneapolis too, but 14 months, that's a lot of time and, and invested. And that tells me, this is just my opinion, that tells me, first of all, they want to make sure he was going to draw, but they did have trepidations that he wasn't going to draw without a big uh, sideshow around him. I mean, think, you know, you guys on TV over a year and you don't bring him in. And I, and that's something maligning Bob. I just think that the timing was right. I think Bob would have been a huge star if he beat the guy that actually beat superstar Billy Graham rather than him being superstar Billy Graham. Because I think in back of the, some of the people's heads, especially the Italians, they kind of didn't say, oh, he beat the guy that beat Bruno. They were saying, ah, he beat the guy that beat Bruno. Do you know what I mean? That's interesting. It was like yeah. A, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I did one time take psychology, and there is a thing, you know, it's that passive-aggressive uh, thing where, oh, yeah, that's good, but, uh, you know. And I, I thought about, I've thought about that, about how the Italians took that, because he wasn't one of theirs. They had, you know, and I, I often thought about this. When he beat Superstar, if Bob had gone and learned, all he had to learn is two sentences in Italian. I did this for Bruno in Italian. And I think oh, he would. Oh, my God. <laughs> he yeah, would have been over. <laughs> I think it would have. Yeah. Yeah. Where. You know, but you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But yeah, we certainly are going. Uh, I know it's it, when people told me that Bruno died, I thought he'd go on forever. You know, 
Well, what about in 89 when you're on the booking committee? You guys used him yeah. in Halloween Havoc 89 as the special, I don't know if it was referee or enforcer for that cage match with Muda and Funk versus Flair and Sting. What do you remember about bringing Bruno back to Philadelphia that night? Well, I knew it'd be huge. And Bruno, actually, that was when he had the heat with the office in New York and really j- jumped at the chance to come back. And again, he was a presence in the dressing room. Everybody came in to see him. It was like kissing the Pope's ring. I mean, he was, he was, uh, even the, the other guys that were champions who came to see Bruno and paid their respects. And he just had this aura about him that he was bigger than life. Well, there it is, Kevin Sullivan, and that concludes our look at the life and career of Bruno Sammartino. You know, John, it really is interesting. I brought up earlier the comparison to other Northeast sports celebrities or New York sports celebrities like Mickey Mantle, let's say Walt Clyde Frazier. I always thought of Bruno in that class of athlete, but the one difference is the way Bruno conducted himself is kind of the way you would think every athlete should conduct themselves and none of them do. The way of handling himself with integrity and dignity, never really doing anything that would be seen as disrespectful in front of the fans, never saying anything, never cursing in front of the fans, never drinking in front of fans. There really aren't too many athletes or too many celebrities that I could ever think of who behaved with the class that Bruno San Martino did. No, I can't either. A good comparison might be someone like Joe DiMaggio, who, I mean, there's DiMaggio stories out there, but he was always, you know, on that pedestal to New York fans. And, you know, he, his face uh, stayed around. He was uh, on WPIX working for the Yankees, and then he did the Mr. Coffee commercials. And, you know, he was looked on as, like I said, he was on that pedestal, and Bruno was like that as well. Bruno did not have Mr. Coffee, but he did have Bally's in Atlantic True. City. Yes, we're, we're actually, he now that I think Mays. of it, it's him, Willie Mays, and Walt Clyde Frazier, and Bobby Orr, or whoever else was there, I forget, but they're all dancing and having a great time in tuxedos in Atlantic City. Go to YouTube if you don't know what I'm talking about. Just put Bally's Bruno San Martino, and you get to see him and various other celebrities and sports stars dancing. But anyway, we're, we're not going to end on that note, John. John, as we begin to wrap things up, anything we didn't touch on, anything you want to talk about Bruno's career that we did not already hit on? There's there's one thing, and that is, I believe it was the either the end of 1984 or the beginning of 1985, the, the main event at Madison Square Garden. And when I say the main event, it was the thing positioned highest on the card that drew the crowd, was a Piper's Pit with Bruno Sammartino. And you had – this is how over Bruno was and, and how over Piper was as well. People were paying money, you know, $12 of 1985 money to go see Bruno Sammartino kind of bicker with Roddy Piper in the middle of the ring. And you knew deep down that it wasn't just going to end there, that these two were going to get at it. And that's what the people wanted to see. And it just speaks volumes, again, to what an incredible draw Bruno Sammartino was. And they hung on his every word. I mean, look, it's Roddy Piper. You listen to what he says. But Bruno being there with Piper had that dynamic because here's the old school. Here's the old world. And here's this whole new breed of wrestler (laughs) that we've never seen before in the Northeast. Yeah, Bruno was was not exactly rock and wrestling, but he he was wrestling. He was Bruno Sammartino. He was wrestling. You know, I said it on the Cornette show. I hate these Mount Rushmore 
questions because it's really hard to do. And who says that four should be the number? But if you're going to do it, if you really are going to do it, Bruno has to be one of the four. He has to because no one has the longevity. No one had the popularity, the drawing card. Everywhere he went, he was a major star. There's no other star in wrestling history quite like Bruno San Martino. And quite frankly, I, we probably didn't do enough on this show to talk about him. But hopefully you have enjoyed what you have heard this week. The 605 Super Podcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For John McAdam, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho!